All right. Well, welcome to the debut episode of uh, Movie Night Extravaganza. Um, you know, we're going to be trying to do this every week with a different movie of some kind, and we're going to be doing these like movie live streams. But we have uh, we have J. Andrew World, we have John Ross, we have Karthik, you know, um, to discuss Kiss Me Deadly tonight. So I wanted to play this Mickey Spillane so that, you know, so that Andy could sound off on this first because, you know, the original book was written by Mickey Spillane. Um, I have this this interview of him talking about Mike Hammer. Think how do you go about putting a story on paper? Well, it's a hard thing. You to have say. a set outline that you. When I'm follow? ready to write, I write. I have to wait till the thing is there. I just can't sit down and and do it. When the story's in my mind, I can sit down and work right through the day. Fine, but uh, I have to have a story. Right you plot there. your characters in advance. I know what the ending is, and I have my characters in mind. I write the ending first, then I lead up my story to it. How did the name Mike Hammer? Come about. Oh, Mike is a development from a comic book character called Mike Danger. He never hit the stands, but he was comic book writing. He was one of the original ten who started comic books. Now everybody's going to throw rocks at me for doing it, but those are the days of Target, Blue Bolt, Submariner, Human Torch. I don't think you're old enough to remember them. I remember Captain Marvel. But you are old enough. Go ahead. <laughs> oh well, how did, get, how did you get? Uh, how did you get? Uh, uh, the title of Mike Hammer, then. Well, this is a comic book character I had. He was a rough, tough hero. He was just like Mike was in the books. But it was an adult-type character. Now, we wrote those comic books for the adults. The largest sale of comic books were around Army and Navy camps. And uh, I've seen many a guy going out with a weak supply of literature under his arm right after payday. But I transferred this character, Mike Hammer, from Mike Danger. Mm -hmm. And it paid off. How many Mickey Spillane paperback and hardcover books has your publisher sold to date, Mick? Well, the total sale of the books amounts to something like 72 million copies. That includes hardback, softback, and foreign editions, including uh, the three pirated editions I have out. What are the pirated editions? Well, Turkey, Mexico, and China have their copyright laws set up so that they can just steal anything they want. They stole me all right. Have you seen these? Oh, yeah. They're very funny. The name of one book, my gun is quick in Mexico, is means my pistol is rapid. <laughs> um, that's a lot of books, and it comes up to a lot of money. Uh, augment this with your TV and movie earnings. That would make you out as a pretty wealthy man, I suppose. No, these days of taxes, you can't be wealthy anymore. There was a time when I did have a lot of money. I had nothing but trouble when I had it. And I'm just as happy not to be in this wealthy category again you had trouble you mean with uncle sam perhaps oh, or no having, having money means that you're surrounded by people who are after that money as hard as uncle sam is but for different reasons did you ever think when you were a little boy that you would someday be a millionaire oh certainly i knew it you had a feeling you would make a lot of money yeah i knew it i knew i was, I was going to did you come from wealthy parents no no just the other way around I like to say I went to college and put my family through home. Love it. I love those interviews. Um, uh, talking about the golden age. It, it just, it makes me so happy. Um, my heart is sinking right now, you know, hearing Mickey Spillane talk about uh, Submariner and, and uh, whatnot. Uh, so, so yeah, no, um, uh, big fan of comics. Uh, I, I, uh, um, you, I just, big, you a big fan of comics. I, yeah. I never really guessed that. Yeah, I mean, here I am wearing a uh, T-shirt about the Star Wars comic from the uh, 
from you know from the seventies uh, early eighties with um, uh, 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 Carmine Infantino doing the artwork on it, uh, and, and you know Carmine Infantino, uh, you know a fantastic guy, you know kind of a legend. He kind of kickstarted the Silver Age. Um, he was talking mostly about the Golden Age back, uh, you know, whenever he was, was uh, developing my camera, where there was like, uh, they really were making the comics for adults, and they were all over the uh, the place. In fact, when uh, Jack Kirby was um, drafted and went into the service, his uh, drill sergeant found out he did Captain America, and he's like, why are you in infantry? You could you can go off and not uh, fight, and he's like, sir, I want to punch Nazis. <laughs> Uh, but I mean, that's just Jack Kirby. He just, you know, every story he ever told, he ends with him punching a Nazi. Uh, but I mean, it's just, you know, comics is full of these these uh, fun, colorful characters, um, uh, you know, uh, behind the scenes, not just just in front of the uh, uh, the comics. And, and I know a lot of people have read uh, Cavalier and Clay. And that book is based on a lot of actual stories. Like, like there's like, you know, I could see Jack Kirby. I could see Stan Lee. I could see... Um, uh, 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 Jim Steranko and, and and many of these other people that that they, they they've uh, made reference to throughout the uh, uh, this the book it, it seemed just I, I I could see where where all the different pieces were from from it so I was a little like annoyed by that in a way like it, it seemed more like it, it took me out of the story more than than bringing me into it uh, but I could see like people who don't know these things uh, loving it but um, uh, okay, so, so let's let's. I guess for for this focus on uh, Mickey Splane. Well, I was about to really yeah, write yeah, that because yeah. um, uh, growing up, Frank Miller was one of my favorite artists, and Frank Miller always said the name Mickey Spillane whenever he was uh, uh, talking about uh, you know this uh, making comics. And right right whenever I was kind of coming of age into comics, he was doing a book called Sin City, which is a big nod to uh, uh, Mickey Spillane and my camera. And uh, le later, he actually did do uh, some Mike Danger comics. Uh, that that came out in the '90s, um, which I actually had a poster of in my freshman college dorm room, hanging above my bed with a giant swastika on it. I don't even know, um, but you know, it, it was just uh, it wasn't about anything. It was Frank Miller, Mickey Spillane, and um, I never was able to track down that comic because uh, the comic industry kind of imploded around then. So I don't think Mickey Spillane made much money uh, in comics at the uh, uh, when he, he dropped the Mike Danger stuff. Yeah, but he made a shitload of money um, doing these pulp, these pulp, uh, you know, novels, which at the time were kind of what comics were in the sense of, you know, it's it's low, it's considered lowbrow, I guess, entertainment. Yeah, yeah. Well, they they were like churned out quickly. Um, it goes back before comics with like Doc Sampson, The Shadow, um, The Green Hornet. Uh, although I think it was a radio play first. Raymond um, Chandler is probably the most famous. Um, one of the most famous uh, pulp novelists, like they all got transformed later on, like two decades later into noir films. Like I, I you know, the whole noir genre is kind of taken from these pulp novels. And um, I mean, you know, it, it's, you know, they're dark, they're gritty, much like, you know, like the, the Frank Miller comics are like, it, it, they always involve uh, this like, you know, a private detective or for the most part, like going mm -hmm. and solving a, a, some kind of murder mystery or some kind of mystery. Um, and, you know, I think Mike Hammer became one of the most famous ones because, he, you know, it was the most violent version of it. It was the most dark version of it. And, like, as you can tell from that, just from that interview, like, Mickey Splane's politics are, are not anywhere close to what our politics are. He's incredibly reactionary um, in general, incredibly, you know, kind of just brutish. Um, and, and he really became the most famous um, 
you know, he, he became the most famous uh, Cold War era novelist, probably like in, in this kind of lowbrow, low, like lowbrow genre of, of novelization. Um, I, you know, after wanting to be a comic book artist and or a comic book writer and, and failing at that. Yeah, he's kind of like uh, uh, that generation's uh, James Patterson. Yeah. I think of it that way, or maybe Stephen King. Um, but you can actually argue the literary value of Stephen King. No, no, Stephen King, uh, yeah. I, I think he's probably more like James Patterson. Um, yeah. So, so this, so Kiss Me Deadly is is very interesting for that reason, because, you know, the, um, the original uh, book, instead of being about an atomic, like atomic scientist, it's about, you know, uh, Mike Danger pushing his way into like a mafia ring, and you know um, they're they're selling like they're they're shipping heroin or something in, in the mail, and you know this woman uh, comes upon I guess it's like an ex uh, an ex lover of like the mob boss who you know you know the mafia does play a role in the movie version of Kiss Me Deadly, but you know she's supposed to um, she's supposed to like stand in front of a Senate hearing on the mafia, and it's interesting that this is all happening obviously before um, you know Mario Puzio wrote The Godfather. Um, and, and, and you were talking a little bit about the the hearings. Uh, that's probably a reference to the uh, that senator I was mentioning before we started. Uh, Estes, um, okay, hold up, hold up. Estes Kafukface. I I can't. Um, I've only ever read his name. I've never heard his name said out loud. Um, uh, but like he 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 uh, um, in 1951 ran televised um, uh, mob hearings in New York City. And the, uh, the mob bosses like, you know, made a special deal where they couldn't, you know, uh, he couldn't, they couldn't see his face whenever they were doing the live TV broadcast. They could only show his hands and the entire time he was fidgeting. And so like, that was like this iconic moment of, of the era, um, which led to uh, Estes running for president in 1952, winning nearly all the um, uh, primaries and, uh, uh, made uh, the the, the uh, current president uh, drop out at that point. So, uh, you know, like I, I'm assuming that's kind of where he's uh, where that part of the story was being pulled from was was actually uh, something from history. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it, it's interesting. So the, the movie version of it um, is obviously a, a kind of a leftist, a much more leftist um, critique of, of this work. You know, kind of treating. Um, like Mike Hammer as a as a as, a, as an object of ridicule and satire, um, and this you know and Mickey Spillane's politics as like a you know as as ridicule and satire. And we can get you know more into that um, once we go through it. But you know, so he apparently hated this this version of um, this character um, in this movie, and and got to the point where he later made uh, Mike Hammer movies, and he insisted that he needed to play Mike Hammer in at least one of them because he wanted to show. And you know, you can see that like he kind of has like this brutish like you know like like tough guy way of holding himself you know like at least conception of himself which kind of makes it funny but like isn't you know it's by no way like a leading man or or anything like that you know um <laughs> so do you want to go through uh start going through the the movie i guess um so the movie opens uh christina bailey is running down the middle of the street wearing just a trench coat um it is dark and she tries to flag down several cars with no luck Finally, she jumps in front of a car that uh, Mike Hammer, Ralph Meeker is driving, and he has to swerve to avoid her. And in the process of swerving, he gets extremely upset and, uh, you know, pulls into the, the, the shoulder of the road. And he finally tells her to get in the car and, you know, has a, a bunch of choice words uh, for her, I guess. And, um, 
and then at that point the credits start. Um, I, it's interesting that Cloris Leachman, you know, was extremely was extremely pretty, um, you know, uh, during that time period. Like, kind of seems like someone that would have ended up being like a, a famous starlet, I think. And it's it's funny that you know I think at this point she's best known for her like Mel Brooks turn, where Mel Brooks kind of dressed her up as every single possible like uh, a form of um, like every, every kind of like ugly or or like. To the point where in Young Frankenstein, the joke is literally that she's so ugly that every time they say her name, the horse goes in the background. Like, um, yeah, and, and like she, she also was just—I uh, mean, that was her first role too. That that was, yeah. uh, uh, but like you know, she's naturally funny. So so like mm -hmm. you know, glad she was able to do the Mel Brooks stuff because like honestly, all of her works since then been hilarious. Yeah, yeah, and, and she she's really good as a she's a really good roaster. Uh, if yeah. you go back to uh, like uh, like during the roast of Bob Saget in 08, she got up there and just did like like thirty minutes worth of comedy, and it was just so hilarious. So she's really she's got the comedic chops as well, as well uh, uh, the comedic chops as well as the movie chops. All right, so um, yeah, definitely. So they're in the car and and rather have the blues by uh, Nat King Cole is playing, and that's kind of the theme song of the movie. It returns multiple times throughout the movie. And uh, they come to like a roadblock where cops are standing in the road, and she kind of hides down on on my camera. Uh, just real quickly before mm -hmm. we kind of talk about that, we should we should at least talk, um, just touch on the credits because the credits were backwards, yeah. which is just uh, kind of unnerving. And then like it was just her breathing, um, yeah. like like almost um, like like because uh, uh, that article you'd sent us, you know, was discussing how um, uh, almost pornographic that was. Mm -hmm. And right. I didn't know, if, yeah. yeah. I had that I had that feeling as well, and and I think I, I just basically um, attributed that to the to the genre and the form, like the shock value of it. It just starts with a car crash, woman, just like basically five things happen in sequence, which were all I I would imagine hard to film and like uh, executed in a way that like it's it's dramatically it's got its dramatic value and uh, probably shocked the audience in a sort of way, and uh, I'm pretty sure the audience was like. Uh, actually viscerally having the reaction that we um, probably, I don't know if we had that, I, I don't know if I had that experience uh, of somebody watching it in 1955, right? Like of uh, seeing an opening credit scene where the words are going backwards and uh, it's just a woman breathing in a, in, a, in a way that's like, what is she, you know, what's making uh, that sound? Like basically what's that sound supposed to signify? And uh, it's not tension, it's not really uh, like, pacing of the narrative either um so yeah, yeah it's, hard, it's hard to judge because we don't have pearls to clutch <laughs> my stars <laughs> um so i i think that the christina bailey character is honestly great um for the for the short time she appears on camera anyway because um you know reading reading the or listening to the novelization of kiss me deadly you know every woman in that movie or in that in that book is instantly in love with my camera like it gives no resistance like in in the in the novelization of it um he like she like immediately like grabs his and, like it's, it, you can get away with much more obviously in in you know whole, whole novels so she like grabs his like it says like she puts her hand on his like pants and like um try like you know so that, that he, to, like steady him and like he can see her body and she flashes him in the trench coat and she can see everything because she's naked under the trench coat obviously and like you know it's extremely sexual but you know in this instead of that really 
happening and her just being like some like damsel in distress character that he rescues, she kind of starts taking him to task and like just roasting him, which, uh, you know, is fucking hilarious, I, I think. Um, she says, uh, she's, you know, she's saying that even his car sends a message and he says, now what kind of message does it send you? And she goes, you have only one real lasting love. He goes, now who could that be? So you, you're one of those self-indulgent males who thinks about nothing but his clothes, his car, himself. I bet you do push-ups every morning just to keep it very hard. And then he says, are you against good health or something? And she said, I could tolerate flabby muscles in a man who may be more friendly. You're the kind of person who never gives in a relationship, who only takes, ah, woman, the incomplete sex. And what does she need to complete her? Why, a man, of course. Wonderful man. And, you know, I, I think that that line is, is amazing. Number one, because imagine, you know, you pick somebody up, you go through all this, and they immediately just start, you know, like, fucking with you in the car. But, um, <laughs> but uh, you know, I, I think that it's, it shows that this is not going to be the kind of movie where, you know, um, the Mike Hammer character is just, I mean, you know, there is a fair amount where women just fall into his hand and he kisses them or, like, you know, he, he meets up with, like, you know, floozies or, or like, uh, like, like kind of just dumb seeming women, I guess. Like there definitely is some of that, but throughout the movie, you don't really get the, you, like, it's not like he's met with no resistance in, in all of these cases. Like, you know, the women seem to have um, a lot more, uh, you know, the women seem to be more than just plot devices in, in a lot of cases. Um, so, yeah, so, so they pull up to, uh, and, I, and I think that's directly trying to, you know, um, almost like fight with the text of, of the novelization. Like, trying to kind of take Mickey Splane's reactionary politics and turn it into, you know, um, a much more, you know, a much more uh, equitable, I guess, reading of it. I, I don't know if you've ever seen uh, Sledgehammer, a uh, TV series from the 80s, but it's, it's, um, it's, a, it's a half hour comedy that's spoofing this kind of, um, uh, you know, this, this, you know, a lot of the tropes that, that are in uh, the Mike Hammer stuff. And um, uh, the, the, they, they actually like, due to comic effect dialogue almost like this you know talking about like how bad women are and then like like you know of course it'd be like this great turn in the whole scene and it'd just be brilliant but um uh, i can't honestly like it's been a while since i've seen that show but but uh uh if you if you want to see like some more satire like this that's uh definitely a good hole to go down because there's only two seasons of it and the first season ends with a nuclear bomb going off <laughs> So yeah, so directly, yeah. Uh, directly kind of making fun of this. <laughs> um, so so uh, yeah, so first they come upon this this roadblock um, where the police are saying a woman's escaped from an asylum upstate, and uh, she kind of hides down, and, and he he goes with it and lets her and, and claims that his wife has been asleep, and they kind of let them pass despite the fact that she direct, she exactly matches the description that they're giving everybody so the cops are just like all right all right i guess go through um and then you know he starts i thought i thought at first when i first watched it because i watched it a few years ago i thought when he said oh this wheel keeps pulling over he was gonna kick her out of the car i thought that's where they were going with this because like that sounds like a line like oh wow this wheel but so i guess during the the crash they got a um a big piece of like branch stuck in the tire in the car and they have to take it to a service station and she disappears at the service station for a little bit and then asks the the cashier or the, the service guy, I guess, to um, to mail something for her, which is, you know, sketchy request, but it's the 50s. So, you know, I don't know if that's, like, something that pretty often happened. Um, <laughs> um, that was a different time back then. Yeah. yeah my, my grandmother always tells me stories about going to strange gas stations and having to mail stuff for her. 
So, um, yeah, so they continue on after this guy agrees to mail something for her. And clearly, you know, you've seen her see Mike Hammer's uh, address mm. on, the, on the car because at the time, you know, you had to put your, your name and address on the, on the steering. Um, so they keep, they keep going towards this, uh, towards, you know, the bus station, I guess, in, in LA, in LA. But, um, you know, so right before, uh, they hit the second roadblock, she says, if, if they don't make it to the bus stop, remember me. And he's like, oh, we'll make it. And she's like, well, if we don't, you know, remember me, which is, you know, it comes up later, later in the movie. So all of a sudden a large black Cadillac pulls out in front of them. And all of a sudden, you just hear, and this is really the most terrifying scene I think in the whole movie. You just hear screaming, and and you see her legs hanging as if she's being hung and tortured, and she's like twitching. And you see, you know, Mike Hammer's on the ground, and obviously has been knocked out or tortured as well. But you hear like these voices just talking about, you know, um, it, it's an interesting uh, line that they say in there. I think the line is, "She's uh, like, oh, you want me to make her come too?" And he said, "If you make her come too, you're gonna have to bring her back from the dead." And who do you th- who do you think you are that? Uh, that you can make that happen or something. And so clearly she's dead and he's unconscious and they put her, they, they put them both in the car, they send the car down the hill, um, you know, and, and it's supposed to, you know, uh, be, a, be a red herring, I guess, and make it look like a car accident so that, you know, Mike Hammer dies, she dies, and, and the whole thing is neatly sewed up. Wow. Yeah, and also kind of nicely ties in, if you know uh, the, the French phrase for uh, orgasm, um, uh, it's le petit mort, which is the little death. Mm. So, so you know, it's it's again kind of playing with uh, the, these, um, uh, you know, getting around the the uh, what is it, the haze coats that were uh, in effect. Yeah, yeah, the haze coats were were, were going to be in effect for I believe five more years. So this is okay. And you know, during this time period, they kind of loosened on a lot of things. Like haze kind of lost its grip on stuff. And in 1960, I think Breathless came out, and that was like really the first new like new Hollywood, well, it wasn't a Hollywood, but like new cinema movie that kind of, the, the code was just disregarded at that point. Um, but yeah, so it was at the very tail, tail end of the Hayes Code, but it was also one year after the McCarthy hearing. So it's in a very interesting time period for censorship. Um, and, and, I wanna, and I wanna talk more about that when we finish going through it. Um, but yeah, so I think that's the most terrifying scene um, because you know, and if they had shown her getting tortured, I don't think it would have been terrifying. I think the fact that you don't know what's going on, you just hear the screaming, and you see the the, the feet of the guys, like as if you're looking through my camera's uh, eyes, like makes it so much more terrifying. Which is one of the weird things about you know the Hayes Code, like the, the extent that they've had to go to get around that. I think um, kind of made filmmakers so much more innovative, but it also kind of you know destroyed what you could actually do in film. Um, so yeah. So, so yeah. So uh, it's it's kind of interesting. I don't know if I'm jumping at. That's why I hesitated a little bit uh, because th- this this concept of uh, the woman being tortured and Mike actually sees that happen. Uh, there is a moment when he vi- like it, it, we are shown uh, the shot from his perspective and he does see uh, what's going on. However, like more towards the end of the not towards the end so much as like two thirds into the movie. Maybe uh, he talks about what makes him uh, want to do this or want to continue despite all of the stuff that has happened. And he basically kind of tells, I think he tells his, uh, tells Velda, if I'm not mistaken, um, that like it's because of a, a friend of his that he, that dies later. 
so i'm just wondering what makes like uh mike not want to state this as like a motivation for whatever he sets out to find because this is the thing that motivates him right like this torture that mm-hmm. happened right in front of him that he witnessed uh is supposed to be the motivating factor but strangely he doesn't su- say that this is what is keeping him going he says something else keeps him going which is kind of interesting i always thought that this torture was uh it's interesting that the movie starts with torture and that's the driving force he wants to get to the bottom of yeah. he wants to find what's happening and and in the novelization it's it throughout it he states over and over again that the torture is the reason that he wants to continue um mm-hmm. I, you know it it's an extremely reactionary novel in the sense that you know his his driving force is vengeance um and and i think in the movie too but i i think it's less stated it's not like overtly stated as much like his his drive is like you guys tortured me you guys left me for dead i'm going to fucking kill all of you um <laughs> and it's pretty it's pretty hard too like you know the hasco to really do an anti-hero so yeah. like it's kind of amazing to see such a great one on screen like this and he's in a fucking asshole like yeah. that's that's kind of like the most like there's nothing likable about his his character whatsoever like and you know cuz i think that i would argue that you know humphrey bogart did an amazing like the closest he could get at the time to like an anti-hero. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. hard he's hard partying. You know, he wants he wants good but not lawful good. Um, you know, throughout all of those movies. But this is like mm-hmm. a very this is a very satirical version of that where he's fueled purely by rage and vengeance. Um, you know, and which which was I think where where these pulp novels the only way that they the only place they could really end up in. <laughs> um, I mean, I have to say it was um very tame compared to you know dirty harry and uh, a lot of the kind of anti hero uh, movies that that uh, were to follow uh, in through in the in the decades but uh, looking at this kind of uh, he he seems pretty tame and uh, he to the extent that like mike hammer almost seems like uh, he reminded me of uh, the character of ryan gosling from drive that like he basically just had one uh, objective and and he was able to reconcile his entire life around it and and that's all that uh, his character ever amounts to uh, if you if you probe his character deeper than that you kind of come up with nothing because mm-hmm. that's all there is to this person and and that i find is telling and like a couple of interpretations or readings of this is like seen as a sort of existential hero who has made his peace with his existence his mortality that he's like saying okay this is what my purpose in life is going to be um and i think that like this character kind of in a it, despite being an anti-hero and like despite being a violent person in so many ways in a, you know in in a an violent, intimidating way as well a violent misogynist which kind of makes it funny that you know his his vengeance is fueled i think from uh Christina Bailey's death because throughout the movie he really he really shows on a lot of different levels he fucking hates women like you know what i mean like there's like he views them in in extremely simplistic terms he wants them to get away from him his his sexuality almost seems like he's angry about you know having sexuality in the first place which right something right. that uh <laughs> because it interferes with this objective his objective is to get to the bottom of it to the truth and uh in a in a very weird way i guess that's the reactionary aspect of it he's just like so upset that his like objective or vision is being interfered with by all of these women who are throwing themselves at him and he feels yeah. like yeah he feels like come on man let me do my thing or whatever <laughs> it's the kind of attitude I, that this guy comes I up i thought with. of i thought of like this comedy bit 
that like, remaking like a Mickey Splane novel, but like he's walking down the street because the Mickey Splane version of this is that every woman he meets throws himself at Mike Hammer. But like the the way that he describes it is like horny as fuck. It's pretty much I mean it's pretty much like a like so like so like ninety percent of Kiss Me Deadly is like a woman walking up and he's like her legs were so like vivacious and her lips wrapped around me. I just could couldn't stop thinking about it. And he's just like It's like a first person narration. Yeah. And he's and he's horny as fuck throughout it, like clearly. So I was thinking like what if there was a movie of, of like Mike Hammer walking down the street, but every time he sees a woman, like his head turns and like he has to like he has to just like start narrating objectively just like misogynistic horny dialogue about her. So he's just like walking and like someone's walking by and it's like and he's like she was standing there walking down the street, <laughs> those legs walking one in front of the other. And I just thought, what if they were wrapped around me and those lips? And like, but then all of a sudden he has to go back to like walking in front of him again. He's just like, <laughs> he like goes back to his like laundry list, you know, his grocery yeah. list there, like, you know, 12 eggs, uh, <laughs> gallon of milk. Well, yeah, those. He, he puts it down, like cashiers in front of him. He's like, <sighs> I was thinking about her lips as she took down my. My uh, <laughs> my order and my head, my my face went down to her breasts, and I thought, God damn! And it's like he gets nothing done throughout the day. <laughs> oh, that would not that would not play today for sure. Yeah, only only Definitely. a satire, only specifically as satire of this thing. I think I don't think like a, a serious movie like that would play today. But I wouldn't yeah. want to do that either. Yeah. I particularly thought that in this case, the satire was went even further than satire, which I, I mean, I, I don't want to get ahead of you uh, talking about this, but the women uh, in this movie uh, have some kind of strange uh, qualities that they bring to the table each, uh, despite Ooh. the fact that they throw themselves at him, which I presume is the is the source material, you know, uh, borderline like uh, kind of lowbrow stuff, as you as you said, um, but. The women somehow seem to kind of have some amount of like leverage uh, mm -hmm. over over this guy's character, um, and and he isn't all that like kind of his own independent actor, despite the fact that he claims he is like that he's motivated he solely. Yeah, like his whole his whole persona is that he wants to be. He isn't, but like you know, in the movie at least, I, not in he is in the in the novel, but in the movie, which is kind of. I think the movie is in dialogue with the novelization, and it, it makes sense because uh, Robert Aldrich, who directed it, thought that fucking Mickey Splane was a fascist. Like he hated the novelization. It's kind of in the same way that um, Bearhoven treated uh, Starship Troopers. You know, like or, or the he, way I treat Frank Miller. <laughs> um, so, like you know, he he's kind of satirizing, and you know, I mean, the the Criterion article, which I think is a really amazing, talks about how he's kind of both satirizing and exploiting. Um, the source material at the same time, but you know he's kind of satirizing this, uh, like because I think Mike Hammer is the Mike Hammer from the novelization, but everybody else in the movie really isn't. Like you know what I mean? Like everyone else has far more agency. So he's kind of running around, just kind of like people will like maybe answer his question. He'll grab them and start like hitting them and like all like you know what I mean? All of that, but like it's it's actual people and not just like you know one dimensional caricatures in a lot of cases that he's doing that too. And there's a joy yeah, it's too. All, yeah. Like, like well, to the it's performance. Also, oh, sorry. Go, go. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Andy. I was just going to say that there's a joy to um, the performance of uh, the actor whose name's escaping me right now. Meek, Meek. Ralph, Ralph Meeker. Ralph Meeker, yes. Um, like, like, you know, 
there's the sadistic joy of just beating the crap out of people and, mm -hmm. and it's it's um like like this this great visceralness like like another just reason why you hate him yeah. uh like you know you don't you're not cheering for this dude um you're just trying to figure out what this mystery is because yeah. they set up a great what's mystery. in the box <laughs> <laughs> like right, where go, i was gonna oh yeah no go yeah where i was gonna get out with the movie is like it's just like good di we're talking about good dialogue and like writing structure as far as like you know the narration of like i, I see her walking like i, I could feel her lips around me as he's, as he's in the grocery store and it's like uh bob aldridge uh, robert aldridge and the co-writer who is um whose name is like his his last name is so long i can't pronounce it but ai uh, ai bezreed or Bez yeah ai ai, AI bezreed must have had some like thinking of how this movie, how this would play on paper, on screen, as far as like where the dialogue is gonna go. And it was, mm -hmm. it was in a way written uh, with a misogynistic uh, point of view, um, just, the, just the way that the, um, that the dialogue is written, if, mm -hmm. if you hear what I'm saying. Um, of course, a show like, uh, a movie like this could not be played today because society has, has changed, uh, you know, 50, 60 plus years uh, later. And um, and yeah, I I don't know. I mean, I kind of straight uh, have an example for that, which is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Just blew everybody's uh, expectations out of the water by like making exactly this movie uh, all over again. Um, and like Brad Pitt is exactly this character without like any. I mean, maybe slightly slightly more likable because he doesn't like hit strike first uh, ever. By the um, way, by the way, um, in this in this example, Tarantino is very much aware of this movie. The, uh, mm -hmm. the he he famously said that the the briefcase in Pulp Fiction, the fact that there's a briefcase and there's a mystery and he never opens it, that is a, a reference to Kiss Me Deadly. So I'm I'm just like Tarantino is is it's not like Tarantino has never seen this movie and then kind of creates that out of thin air, I guess. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, like uh, Picasso said, you know, good artists uh, borrow, great artists steal. So yeah, like there's like fifty, there's like I don't know how many plus songs in the music industry. How many of how many of them sound like one another? Like how many, um, you know, like Tom Petty, just a perfect example. Like Tom Petty was very much like uh, kind of protective of the way his music was distributed, and like in like '06 the Red Hot Chili Peppers song, Danny California, was supposed to be like, uh, sounding somewhat like uh, Mary Jane's Last Dance. Mary Jane's like, yeah. yeah. He's just like, there's hardly any intent. Their songs songs sound exactly like. I mean, definitely, but I think we've seen also at this point the rise of like the, the film fan director. Like directors <laughs> who, who are, you know, who are open, I hate, I hate this term, but open cinephiles. Like, have devoured every possible. I mean, you know, it's not a good term, but um, haven't we all though? <laughs> haven't like, we all <laughs> taken an underrated? I mean, movie all? geeks is a slightly better term than cinephile. Like by I think miles, and like even movie geek is not like really a yeah a good or term. Film nerd. <laughs> movie geek or film nerd are probably better terms than cinephile. But I think I think there are directors like uh, Tarantino and Scorsese that go past that. Go past mm -hmm. it, like you know, because you could be a film nerd and be like, "Ha ha!" Like I watched this certain kind of movie. I'm such a film nerd. Like they are 
in depth. Like they're like mm. all of their movies, and both of them are seen as kind of the premier, I guess, action movie. Um, you know, uh, uh, like kings of Genre. our, yeah, of our, of our, you know, of our time. They're both people who spent in a, just a disgusting amount of time, I think, watching other movies, and their movies are very much in conversation with that. Um, so, We're wait, Stanley wait, Kubrick. Yeah. Well, we should We're Stanley Kubrick. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I was gonna. I was gonna point out one shot, especially the action uh, movie thing. Uh, there's a shot from the back seat where the uh, car does like a reverse um, in <clears throat> in one direction and then like turns the other way, and the camera's in the back seat. Uh, and and that's a you think that something is gonna happen in the next scene, and it's just basically showing the car doing that motion, and it's really nothing uh, more complicated than that. And and it's just like that's that's kind of when you are reminded that it's an action movie, except that it's taking place in 1955, and yeah. so the action is the way it is. But like even there, like they kind of dazzle you with these kind of like. I mean, Hard Target is a kind of cut, uh, you know, cut like this movie, uh, you know, uh, the John Woo film with John Claude Van Damme. Which movie again? A Hard Target. Hard Target. Okay, cool. Um. Okay, so I'm gonna try to go through this a little bit faster, I guess. <laughs> we're still in the first scene. All right, so um, Mike Hammer awakes in the hospital, and Pat, who I guess is his friend, not really friend, um, character in, in the police department, is um, is asking what happens. And you know, he's he's able to leave the hospital pretty fast, considering how much uh, he's been in a coma for three days. So kind of the fact that he's and then at one point, Pat says, I think he's like, oh, it's going to be a couple weeks before we leave the hospital. He apparently can leave the hospital that day. Um, he walks outside, and immediately he's detained by the FBI. And the FBI is shown to have an extreme amount of disdain for his style of uh, private investigating, including calling him a bedroom dick. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I think some of, that, some of that scene has, like, you know, the greatest dialogue in the movie. Um, I don't know if I can find the quote. I have, like, a... a wiki quote thing that has a bunch of the quotes from it in there but um yeah i don't think that one's in there but uh so basically what they believe his because he does a lot of small divorce cases which already is kind of parodying um i think mickey splain's work because mickey splain has his character i mean has mike hammer like solve all these murder mysteries he's constantly thrown into these things like these big cases like maybe not to the size but like you know these big murder cases but in this mike hammer is literally just a divorce like a I love the term penny ante, but like a penny ante divorce detective that's like part, like it's so small that he's like kind of part of the underworld. So, you know, they're, they're kind of mocking him the entire time. And you get the feeling that Velda, his, uh, his assistant that's, or his secretary that's in the hospital is kind of like a, almost like a prostitute. Like he kind of pimps her out to get information about, um, guys who are trying to get a divorce from their wife. And then he seduces the, the women, um, that are involved in it and they try to get all this information and then they blackmail. So already he's not like, he's not operating within the law whatsoever. Um, he's essentially just blackmailing couples that are trying to get a divorce. And, and like, you think like, all right, maybe the FBI are just being dicks about it. But in the next scene, um, when Belder shows up, there's literally like a porn tape that they have to blackmail <laughs> one of the guys where the guy seduces her and he somehow films it. And he's like incredibly horny about this. His like, the, his secretary who's in love with him He's like incredibly horny about the fact that there's like a, a porno like tape out there somewhere that he has in his possession to bring to court to like uh, blackmail this guy. <laughs> um, so um, yeah, so within within minutes of him getting home, which he has this answering machine, which 
apparently is one of the first answering machines machines in a movie. Um, and you know, AI Bezerid thought that it was amazing that he was able to write in an answering machine because they were apparently a new thing in 1955. Um, so <laughs> he, uh, he, he, um, waits outside and re revokes his, well, all right, I guess I, I missed the scene. So he, he goes to look to see if his car, um, is available after being totaled and thrown down a, down a cliff. And Nick, who is an incredibly, uh, stereotypical Greek character, I guess, but I think he could pass off as several, you know, different Eastern European and, you know, or di different countries, but I guess he's supposed to be Greek and he's terrible at acting, but, um, <laughs> I loved him though. Baba yeah, boom. Yeah. Baba boom. I, I don't, is that a reference to something that happened before? Or is every time people say that, is that a reference to this? I, I don't even know. It was just, it was just gorgeous. I, I loved every single time he was on screen because yeah. like, he's just going to shout something out. Like he had some kind of like Tourette syndrome of awesomeness. <laughs> And it, and it's also it's funny because uh, you know Bezerid was a was a Greek guy, so he's writing this and you know he he's created this Greek character this these Greek mechanic characters, um, and you know he's kind of just written them in, but like he's kind of making fun of his own ethnicity, um, and you know I, I don't know I also think it's funny that like Greek is you know because now like you see someone who's Greek and like I don't think it's like you know at, at this point like they're kind of mocking Greek people it's like almost it feels almost racist but like. Now of course Greek people are are white. I guess this time I don't think they like this time I don't think Italians or Greeks or you know were seen as they were like white ethnics. Yeah. Um, Which uh, I remember um, one time my car broke down in Toronto and my uh, car got towed to Greek Town. And uh, if you know anything about uh, Canadian history, they they only um, in the nineteen seventies or, or six, like late sixties early seventies finally opened up immigration. So like most people there. Or like first, second generation immigrants, um, uh, you know. So, so Greek town, you know, you, you got real Greek people, uh, and, and um, like, pretty much like four in the morning, um, I'm like completely exhausted. So, you know, I had my car towed. I was like seeing the same band for like three nights in a row, and um, you know, so so at this point, like, like my body is just giving out, and, and like this guy's like, "Hey, body, how you doing, body?" Just speaking just like that, and I'm just like. <laughs> This dude right here in this movie is my car mechanic in Toronto. <laughs> well, I, I thought I was like on candid camera or something. Because it's some stereotypes just, like, are based on real things, I guess. I don't know. And I loved it. <laughs> it also reminds me of uh, Watto from Star Wars. I, I know that there's been a whole thing about him being kind of an anti-Semitic trope, but like it feels much more like a Greek, like a Greek trope um, in some ways. Like I don't know, just yeah, the Mediterranean kind of. Yeah, yeah. Which you know, I I can I could talk about that because I am Mediterranean as fuck. But um, <laughs> I. <laughs> He's also the only character who has any kind of like personality, really. I mean, I don't want to make it sound like too harsh on the others, but like among the among the dudes, uh, the uh, the the suits are all like kind of extremely. Uh, as you put it, like fascistic and like reactionary. I think like totally fits the bill. Uh, because they are all like dressed in and, and their suits as well. Um, some of them wear hats and um, and all of that. And he's the only character I think who and he's also the mechanic. So he's also the worker in the in the mix. And these are all kind of that, that's something that I wanted to ask in a in a kind of way. Throw out as a question as a question also if I could. Um, Mickey, uh, sorry, what's his name? Mike Mike Hammer. 
is he who is he really supposed to be a representative of you think like is he supposed to be a representative of the average american guy or uh, or is he like particularly embodying a certain like politics see th- this is what i i messaged you guys about last night that i wanted to talk about he feels almost and i don't know how intentional this is because you know it's 1955 he feels representative of america as a whole like he's he's kind of thrown into this thing and there's like you know like these weird like italian stereotypes the opera guy there's these strange like greek stereotypes you know there's like everybody is kind of like a lot of the people in this in this movie um are kind of these like 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 just various european ethnic like categories and he's kind of the one going in and all of these characters are kind of effeminate or you know or or i guess uh, the guy with the box yeah or like or like or like almost like use yeah like almost like useless like you know what i mean like all these characters are, are just like flat and and one dimensional and uh you know within seconds they give in pretty much but like, like the guy with the box was great cuz he was just like he's just like you know oh i thought i thought i could i got stronger i was breathing more and it was just you yeah yeah and and that guy immediately gives the guy that that's like one of the funniest um moments in in this whole movie because he immediately just gives up her address and it's like he doesn't know who the fuck this is and he's like hey you come here she tells me she don't want anybody to know where she lives but uh but you know I'll tell you right now here's the address like you helped me with the box this one time <laughs> yeah it's just that he gets whatever he wants wherever he goes and it's and it's kind of it's it's interesting it's funny to see that that's exactly the kind of character who will absolutely uh you know who can even exist um right now in that capacity i would say uh the the Brad Pitt character even in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood uh I don't think he particularly got everything that he wanted uh here on the other hand I think uh Mike Hammer pretty much I mean until the very end uh I'm not going to I'm not going to discuss the ending uh, yet but uh he's pretty much yeah, like I feel like I'm still watching it on the second screen god no <laughs> oh, okay <laughs> so i i mean like but he, but he pretty much gets uh gets his way uh, not just like with uh women which which is kind of like he does gloriously according to him but uh, <laughs> uh definitely definitely with uh, with with the all of the sources all of the people that he bullies intimidates kind of like coaxes tricks and uh to get intel um and well, that, that's that, why that's why i think it kind of is representative <clears throat> of america during the cold war because yeah. he first tries like diplomacy in the sense mm-hmm. of like he asks like hey like do you have do you have this information and when somebody says no he just starts beating the fucking shit out of them you know <laughs> what i mean so it's but he goes really he goes really fast from like the bare like this half ass diplomacy version of it like oh you can trust me like don't worry you like you can get this information from me this is what i want to know and then within seconds it flips into this incredible violence um so it kind of i mean it kind of feels like american foreign policy in that sense yeah i i know um and it's also like how we view a foreign policy too because there's this uh horrific aaron sorkin quote and i mean like most things he says is horrific but um uh he's like when i was growing up uh in my father's generation when when uh you know uh the americans showed up everybody around the world would be like thank god the americans are here and now that donald trump is out of office people are saying that again <laughs> Aaron Sorkin's Canadian, right? No, I, no, I think he's no. American. Really? He's, he's he's one of ours, I think. Yeah. Oh, they put it on Jay Hutch talks too much. I always thought he was. For some reason, I always thought he was like 
from just over the border in Canada and was like writing American politics based on that. I think it's because Trudeau said um, when he took office, he was like, oh, don't worry, I'm, I'm settled for this. I've been watching West Wing for the last, like, <laughs> that's probably that's where just I how, like, I mean, that's, this is a whole, that's a whole other topic, but it's, it's, um, it's just like amazing how, yeah, don't consort me. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's just amazing how like the West Wing has like modernized American politics. Yeah, we sort of want that in in our uh, in our society. Republicans don't think that. He's like, yeah, well, the Democrat, well, the moderate Democrats do. Yeah, the moderate liberals, that as I call them. Yeah, not the oh, moderate liberals. Moderate liberals are. Yeah, no, he's he's from he's. From, I was yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm, Manhattan. I'm, I think the only reason I thought that I think was the Trudeau quote. Um, I, I don't he's know. also a drug. He's also a recovering drug addict. <laughs> Just so he's obviously from Colombia. He's uh, <laughs> he's been he's been snorting a little too much bipartisanship, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately. <laughs> um, all well, right. He, so, wait, yeah, so I, I just I just want to try to get through some of this so we can um <laughs> talk about it. I, I really I want this. It got more I, interesting. I want this. Uh, I want this show to have like a like a book club vibe. That's what I decided yesterday. I'm like a, just like a vibe of like like witnessing a book club of like people being like, did you read this? And then getting fucking distracted. <laughs> um, well, all yeah. the moderates want, want a Jed Bartlett. So, you know, let them have at it. They won't get it. They'll get it with, with this current, with Biden, but uh, not even close. You know, Biden's the perfect representation of like a West wing politician, like even more than Obama was because Biden right. is someone who his obsession. I don't think, I don't even know if Biden's watched uh, like West wing. Like it seems like something that, you know, but like his obsession with bipartisanship and his like his like weird belief that like as soon as Trump left office, like Republicans would be fine. And this constant need to like instead of, you know, being like, oh, well, we need a bipartisan bill. Like we need to bring them to the table, even though he doesn't like by definition, right. he doesn't. you know, right. like, it, it's he's the perfect West Wing, uh, you know, vernacular. Yeah. I mean, he's a he's a ghost of a president, like literally, <laughs> and 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 kind of like everything that he says is like as antiquated as a as a ghost would say it. So it's kind of like um, to have Where's somebody it? like that. Yeah, Where's sorry, Mike Hammer? <laughs> you know. Oh yeah, <laughs> Mike having Mike Hammer as president. I don't know. I feel like Mike Hammer would be a Republican um, character. I feel like. I, I, I mean, I, I, I don't Joe know. Biden threatens people. You know, you ever see like like the the guy who comes up and he's like, "Hey, Mr. Biden, I don't like your your uh, gun proposal." And he like grabs the dude by the shirt collar. He's just like, "Listen here, buddy. The law. Listen Come here, on, you man. Son of a bitch. Else, <laughs> like you know, he hawks out on this this dude who actually respectfully and like, like even though I didn't agree with what the guy was saying, like like the the dude was respectful about it and and was you know challenging Biden, but not you know. And, was, and that I, the, uh, was that the come on fat? <laughs> maybe all the guy fat. There was, that, there was that one really weird moment where the guy stood up at a town hall and he's like, listen, fat. And the guy was like, you know, overweight. And <laughs> no, that like, wasn't it. No, no, this was like at, a, at an auto parts place, uh, like a factory. And then the guy confronts about guns and Biden's like grabbing yeah. the dude by the shirt, shirt, you know, by the shirt collar. And just you like, know, that's how he, that's how he talks to um, like union, <laughs> union people. Yeah, um, no, he, he he's a bit like basically Biden is is my camera, except he treats the Democrats and anybody who challenges him like my camera would, and Republicans are basically like the women that he's trying to sniff their hair. <laughs> uh, 
I don't know where this is going to go after that. And I can get things done. That's why I'm running. And you want to check my shape on? Let's do push-ups together, man. Let's do push -ups together. <laughs> no, wow. My son has done anything wrong, and I did not on any occasion. And no one has ever said it. Not I one. Say you were doing anything wrong. I you said, said I set up my son to work in an oil company. Isn't that what you said? I get your work straight, Jack. That's what I hear on the on MSNBC. You don't hear that on MSNBC. No, no, no. You did not hear that. But you heard. Look, okay, I'm not going to get the money, man. I mean the the, the confidence that he has. Look, look, uh, look. Here's the deal. Here's the deal. Wow. Wow. I like that when uh because you don't have any more background Look here, the audience just Look here. Oh, oh. Oh, oh, oh come on. Look here, pal. I'll do a push-up with you. I'll count them out myself. Listen, fat. I'll throw a dollar out there. Listen here, you fat. Listen here, you fat fuck. I'll, 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 make you, I'll throw a dollar on the floor, and if you do a push-up, push-up. Damn, we've all coughed now. Yeah. He, he, he had the last word, though. Kind of. Yeah. I mean, I think he basically told Biden what he probably never wanted to hear, that he and Trump are, you know, equal. And, like, I think there's, there's no larger truth than that, which is obvi obvious. And, like, I think he had to accept that. Like, he turned around... And and I, I also love the confidence of uh, saying that you did not hear that from MSNBC, and it's like, yeah, I know what goes on there. I write the stuff that they that they uh, you know broadcast or whatever. Like that's the kind of confidence yeah. that he has. Yeah. Well, yeah. I don't. I don't think that necessarily. I mean, I like the Mike Hammer is 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 Biden to Democrats and then to Republicans. But like, I don't know. It, it just feels like. I, I think that I think that Mike Hamm would be the most reactionary version of a of a Republican, um, but I, I I don't know. I, so I kept thinking about the foreign policy thing because I, I'm going to try to go through this kind of fast because I don't think these parts of it really matter that much. But he's he's following a thread, and uh, so he goes to first see the scientist guy, like the effeminate kind of scientist guy. After being he's tailed down the street, and the guy's kind of really not good at tailing him. Instead of asking the guy like what he wants, he just starts beating the shit out of the guy on the street, um, and he's like kind of so that's kind of the the start I think of the paranoia, like that level of like you know like violent paranoia that was gripping the entire country um, during the Cold War and that they're kind of commenting on, but um, but you know he shows up to Ray Diker who's the science writer, he shows up to his apartment. Um, by the way, his his badge and gun have been revoked, I guess technically, so he's left with his fists and his will to to investigate um or his his license his i guess uh his license to investigate has been revoked in his gun so he's he's going around to all these places first he goes to the scientist guy and you know the guy's already been beat up for whatever reason and he's like so he's like whispering thinking the guy is tailing him um still which you know mike hammer's beating the shit out of the guy and throwing him down the stairs and cracked his skull i think on the wall in the uh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> without asking who sent you, without asking, like, wh like, why are you doing this? He just started beating the shit out of the guy because he saw a knife. And, um, 
This sounds like I'm describing like some video that I saw on Twitter where I'm like, listen. Yeah. <laughs> um, I was a world star. And <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so I, this guy gives him the, uh, the address where Christina was living, um, the girl that got killed. And so he shows up there and that's where like the old Italian man is, is or Greek man, well, I don't know. They didn't, they're not really clear about what, I guess, ethnic stereotypes people are supposed to be, but he helps this guy move. It's almost like a video game. He helps the guy move the, uh, his, his bag up the stairs. And the guy's like, oh, I think it's my own body, but it's you. And every time I breathe, it's, so there's like this weird interaction and he, he kind of pushes his way into her apartment and they're like, the police have already been there. Yeah, which I love the whole line. It's like, tell your wife to shut up. Yeah. <laughs> Just tell, tell your wife to shut up. And he looks at her. He's like, shut up. But yeah. <laughs> I laughed at that part. That was hilarious. <laughs> but that is how, you know, that is how uh, Mickey Splane is writing at this point. You know what I mean? Like, his, his thing is like, ah, shut up. And the person's like, oh, all right. Like, and he's like, tell your wife to shut up. And he's like, shut up, wife. And he's like, yeah. So the guy lets him in and he doesn't know where the, where, you know, uh, like uh, Christina had a had a roommate named Lily Carver, and he doesn't know um, where Lily Carver went. But there's a bird, and the bird kind of you know she lets the bird die, and then he leaves after investigating, doesn't learn any new information. And the Italian guy kind of like draws him over and goes, "Since you helped me, I tell you where she went. She does not want me to tell." But so he immediately just gives up this information about where this girl has gone, not knowing who the fuck Mike Hammer is, or like you know. <laughs> <laughs> so he comes in and you know the most famous scene of uh i think kiss me deadly the novel is lily carver is sitting there with a gun pointing it at him and he's kind of freaked out that she has a gun and kind of gets violent um but in the movie he is kind of downplayed he's just like oh, i'll put down the gun and he starts questioning her and she immediately kind of gives all this weird information I, that was a very weird scene like her acting is is acting style is very strange it was it was something yeah it, it was just I, yeah, it's like I loved it though because it was it it was like this it's it works even though like it doesn't work. Yeah, Every, that's that's this whole movie I think at different times. Yeah, it's um you know the, the uh, Repo Man is is very much like picks up where this movie leaves off spiritually, and has like all those kind of weird characters and weird performances. Except let's, let's, let's watch that for the third for the third episode of this. Okay, now yeah. you're not curious. Yeah, no, it's it's a good movie and a killer soundtrack. Um, yeah, because I now I want to see this because like <laughs> we've been talking about it so much. Um, yeah, so he drive so he's at her apartment and she's kind of like, yeah, the dialogue in the scene is extremely weird. Um, when she's like, she's like, you get on the merry-go-round and you can't get off, and and where does it go? Nobody knows. Like this just strange like response to his questioning. But like, if I didn't know better, I thought I would think that they were trying to kind of, which which is, I think, what they're trying to do in the novel, like kind of portray her as almost like a junkie. You know what I mean? Like, she's kind of holed up in this place waiting for everything to die down and like, it, you know, is it, kind of like whacked off drugs the whole time, which I think you find out towards the end of the movie that that's kind of the case, or the end of the novel that's kind of the case. But in this, they're not allowed to really show drugs or talk about that. So she seemed kind of whacked out, but she seems also very scared. Um, She's yeah. also the uh, the woman who has a non like I guess transatlantic accent. Mm -hmm. Like she actually is the only one who speaks speaks in the average. Um, yeah, in New York, like, kind of as a New York. The accent. standard New York accent. Yeah. Uh, every other character seems to be seems to have this 
and my cam my camera clearly also doesn't um so between between the three women like she's the only one that uh, that has oh, I, i'm just saying that <laughs> wow. i can see i can see biden pulling up and telling someone's wife to shut up tell your wife to shut up jack <laughs> like if he ran That's in 2016 he'd be like telling that to bill clinton <laughs> <laughs> That's too um, many words, though, for them. I don't think you can deal yeah. with it. Or, or you can deal with that without getting distracted. Like, tell your wife, yeah. tell your wife, tell your wife to shut up, Jack. Listen, 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 man. All right, I don't know. My time's up. I... <laughs> <laughs> um. So yeah. So the the next scene is kind of one of my favorite scenes. Um, a new car gets dropped off at his house after he gets this very strange phone call. And you know, there's a, there's a voice on the other end that's like, "We've ruined your life. We've we've really caused this much suffering, and we're sorry. And if you just forget about what happens, what happened these last few days, you know, we're willing to just uh, forget about the whole thing." And there's this really nice car parked outside that's, I guess, supposed to be the same car that he got, um, like originally had, and it gets dropped off. And for some reason, his mechanic shows up like first thing in the morning at his house <laughs> and he's like, whoa, a new car, baba boom, look at this. He's like, jumps in the car and he's like, oh, maybe I think it for a ride. Like, <laughs> oh, he's all in that. <laughs> truly, truly the best character. You're right about that. I actually thought that they were gonna, they were gonna sacrifice him in that scene, I thought. I yeah. mean, I don't know why not. I mean, why did they have to wait? <laughs> like, they, didn't have the yeah. Yeah. they didn't have a budget to blow up a car. Ah, good, good point. Actually, they probably wouldn't. <laughs> yeah, so, it, so run, again, in '55, it, they already crashed happen. one. They already crashed a car, so maybe mm -hmm. they like can crash a car, but you know, we don't want you to get a second car. Um, so he stops the car from blowing up, and he says that there's probably you know uh, a bomb in the car, which ends up being true. There's a bomb like right under the the spoke in the car, and then he's like, "All right, so we could drive the car." And then he's like, no, there's probably a second bomb in the car. And they find like a second bomb tied to the speedometer that apparently the car revs up and it would explode on a country road, which, okay, I guess I'll buy that. Or speed. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So um, we find the bombs and he, he asked this, uh, the, his sketchy Greek mechanic to go find who planted the bombs and he can have the car. And I think the best line in the best line in this entire movie, because I think that the smartest character in this movie is the other mechanic who, uh, who goes, right. he's so Nick, the, the mechanic is really, you know, happy that he's getting a new car. And he's like, he's like, yeah. Whoa. Blah, blah, boom. And then the guy's like, you should have asked what it's worth to him. And he's <laughs> very like, good line. Yeah. Yeah. But then he's like, don't, don't, uh, don't judge me, Sammy boy. I, I, I play my, you play your guitar and I'll drive my fancy car. Blah, blah, boom. Which, okay. Like, Fine. <laughs> <laughs> but but what is the I, I I'm like always um, maybe because we, uh, having read the context that it's a Cold War uh, movie Cold War era movie uh, I was always like reading into each of these lines which were um, kind of always it seemed like it was a cipher almost like that it was a yeah. code that was trying to tell you something and and I mean beyond the obvious like you kind of have to ask yourself what's in it for. Whom? Like, who is it for him as in for America? Like, that's the question that yeah. you got to ask. And and this is coming. This is coming uh, right after, you know, America is meddled in Greeks in the Greek elections. That's like the first thing the CIA has really done. 
Um, mm. I, I don't know if you know Robert Aldrich would have known that, but I think um, A.I. Bezeride, who's a famous leftist um, playwright, would have probably known that. So I think that mm. line, I, I've always thought that line was a reference to Truman uh, using the CIA to kind of um, meddle in the Greek election because, you know, they kind of overthrew like a, a democratically, not overthrew, but like they used their influence to kind of change the election results. And that was kind of the first thing that the CIA ever did um, in, in a different country. Successful. I mean, yeah, successful. Wasn't it yesterday that uh, there was a letter being shared around where Joseph uh, Biden had written to Guaido, like Juan Guaido in um, in Venezuela, uh, recognizing that whatever, like recognizing him to be the person who should be leading the country and like speaking about a transition and all of that stuff, um, yeah. which is kind of, I mean, it's continuing to this day. And, and, yeah, I mean, that's the that's the whole. I mean, I don't. That's that's what I read into the movie. Is that Joe Biden wrote this letter? Um, no, I read into it that you know everybody else in the world kind of is expendable, and much in the same way, you know, Mike Hammer views his mechanic as expendable. Um, you know, so it, it's so, yeah. I, so this character of Velda is very interesting here because she is sort of like he kind of goes out to in the end eventually becomes like a sort of hunt for Velda type of situation. Uh, but before that, uh, wow, she, I still haven't gotten she, to that part of the movie. I'm watching it on the second screen and you're just, you're just putting this information out. There. <laughs> so, so she, before that, like she kind of, um, ends up being like, like how this character, the, the friend character is to, to Nico or, uh, what, what his name is, forget what his name is, the, the mechanic character, uh, Velda seems to be to, uh, Mike. And she's kind of like the person who's guiding are him. Saying, are you saying Nick's friends in love with him? Uh, no, no. no I'm, Mechan no I'm, the mechanic's I'm, friend I'm totally, is in love. Totally Maybe, kidding. yeah. In a kind of way, he <laughs> does kiss him, right? Like uh, in his hand uh, when he dies and in a yeah, in, no, in I was, no, I, was, I, was, I was kidding about that part. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I, I get what you're saying, though. She's she's the person who's trying to warn him when kind of he's un, he's unwarnable, I guess. Um, or when, he, when he's kind of gung-ho about the entire thing and just pushing himself into the situation where he doesn't really know, like, he doesn't know what he's, like, it's a perfect line when the guy says, uh, what do you want? And he's like, you don't even know what you want. Like, he doesn't know what he wants. Like, and Velda's kind of pushing that information on him. But Velda's also the person that he's sending out there to find out all this information, um, this disconnected information, I think. Right. Um, yeah. So that's a perfect, uh, I guess this next scene is... Um, you know, he's saying that now Now that he's figured this out, the divorce business is a little too small time. And, uh, you know, he's saying this new girl was mixed up with something big. The, the, the most, the most, um, the weirdest line in this whole movie is when he's thinking on the couch. He's like, remember me. That's what that girl said before he died, before she died. And she's like, so remember her. And then she like crawls in his lap and is like, remember me? I'm alive. <laughs> <laughs> That's weirdest. All right, like we just fucking lying the whole thing, but she's gotten successfully multiple names from Ray Diker, who's the science guy that's been beaten up that he like barged into his apartment, and uh, he finds out that you know there's this guy Mike or Lee Kowalski and um, Carmen Trivago, and these are two more characters that he's gonna have to investigate, and uh, so I, I guess um, Nicholas Romando is this guy who. Um, 
was was thrown in front of a car pretty much at one point and died in a really similar way and there's a truck driver that hit him and he goes to like visit this really scared truck driver who's um you know who's who's essentially like um who's essentially like oh he was pushed in front of my truck which you know all right <laughs> but the guy seems really scared of, of the entire thing and you know we're still kind of in the dark about what's actually going on with everything and so he has another friend lee kowalski turns out to be this boxer and he has this friend that, that trains people down at the boxing gym who says that two men charlie max and sugar Smallhouse, told him that if he said anything about who lee kowalski was um he would die and it's some classic noir uh some classic noir dialogue and i just want to say like like that's that opening establishing shot and they did this a couple times with the movie, but this is kind of the first I really noticed it really gave you a space for the area that he was in, the atmosphere of the place. Mm -hmm. And it just this this beautiful single shot that kind of panned, you know, started with the, the guy, the guy hitting the bag and then panning over and seeing him come up the stairs and then cross the room. And and, and like I said, they did that a couple of times. And I, and I love shots like that because like you really have a sense of space of where you're at and an understanding of uh, you know, where everything is. So like whenever you do actually have an action sequence, like, like later on in the film on the beach, for example, you kind of knew where everything was because they, they, they laid it out as they were setting yeah. it up. And um, comic books do that a lot of that too. And I wonder um, uh, if this was like uh, uh, something the director pulled from comics and comics pulled from uh, movies. Cause I know um, uh, um, Citizen Kane did a lot of that kind of stuff uh, and, and you know heavily influenced comics as well as films. Uh, going forward, so uh, I just wanted to point that just, just those beautiful framing shots that that were uh, used specifically in this scene right here. Nice. Um, all right. So, um, yeah. So there's also like a, a strange racial dynamic I think in this scene because his his friend that's um, the boxing uh, trainer is is black and and the boxer is black as well and he's kind of he's kind of ridiculing his friend the entire time or the person that's supposedly his friend, and he's saying, like, oh, like, you do anything for a dollar. Like, you know, what am I going to do? Like, there's there's a strange line where he's like, he's like, you treat, uh, take the gold teeth out of your mother's, like, mouth if you thought you could make a, make a dollar off of it or something. So there's these weird racial lines, um, I think. And and also, I mean, you know, boxing at the time was kind of controlled by the mob, and, you know, people were in it for themselves. So the two things kind of um, combine. But then there seems to be... Um, you know the guy. The the line that I think is 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 great is when he says, "All right, what's it worth to you? I'll make it worth your while, like to tell me this information." And then he says, "You know, you couldn't you couldn't give me that amount." And he says, "What do you mean?" And he goes, he "Goes the guy said they let me breathe." And that's like kind of you realize like these guys just kind of you know, these mob figures, I guess, just pushed in and told him like, "If you say anything about this, you know, um, we'll fucking kill you." And he's he's viewing it through the lens of like this transactionality. And the transactionality is not about money, it's about life. And I think that that's a, a very interesting realization um, without, without you know, having to recreate that or without having to recreate that scene or make it ultra-violent or something. You know, like, just that line seems to point, like, poignantly express that this guy doesn't know what the fuck he's getting into. And also, like, kind of, I don't know if this is reading too much into it, but also, like, the kind of... Uh, it racial it racialized the kind of interaction between the two of them because it seems like this dude is just like he's trying to see how much money will buy him uh, the information that he wants, but he doesn't realize that the person on the other side uh, has his life on the line. And 
and it kind of was a was an interesting moment i mean the choice of the character couldn't have been absolutely arbitrary uh, yeah. because you know the the i think except for that character and and there's a uh singer uh towards the end i don't think there's particularly any central like any featured character who is i uh, i had a I, when that happens i want to talk about that because i have a i think i have a, an understanding of that part of it that mm -hmm. that scene i think is referencing everything that happened with uh billy holiday but i'm, I'm <laughs> yeah it, it seems to be referencing that and and this scene seems to be referencing you know at the time one of the few ways that um you know that that like black black uh successful black um like athletes could come forward was this the, the boxing thing you know like boxing was kind of an equalizer and boxing was also a way that we saw racial dynamics because you know like it's been discussed a lot but like you know there's a lot of times when black fighters would you know beat the shit out of a, a white fighter and it was seen as like a, a racial like a racial moment like on, on both sides of that um like white people did not want to see a white person destroyed by a black fighter and and black and a lot of black people saw it as a you know that's why like muhammad ali became so famous like mm. it's like you know a lot of black uh audiences would watch that and be like holy shit like for once like you're able to see like a like like literally domination and defeat by a, a black fighter or jack johnson before him but it was yeah. like the, the phrase great white hope came out of uh, that uh yeah. that era yeah. uh, and before you know because it was always the great white hope that was gonna take back the heavyweight championship from the from the Negro or whatever. Yeah. Whatever. No, exactly. <laughs> um, all right. So, yeah, and and it was so. I mean, like the the white response to that was so fucking reactionary. They they touch on that in uh in Mad Men, which is uh, a nice throw, like a funny throwaway scene. And like you know, like people refuse to call Muhammad Ali Muhammad Ali. They keep calling him Cassius Clay, mm. uh, as if it was like you know he's not a big deal. He's just Cassius Clay. You know what I mean? Like just this guy that you know came came from nothing and. You know, uh, funny fact: Muhammad Ali yeah. was offered a cameo in Repo Man. Really? Yeah, <laughs> but but uh, he couldn't make it that day, so uh, turned it down. And um, uh, but it would have been great because he would have boxed a car. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we have to watch this as the third, <laughs> the third episode, a hundred percent. I'm gonna do, um, yeah, for for the next one, I'm gonna do the Manchurian Candidate, um, mm. and I have. Uh, JG Michael from Parallax View, I think, and, and David Slavic, they're going to come on and, and talk about that. I couldn't think of like two more interesting people to possibly talk about that movie. Um, <laughs> so instead of going home and just being like, oh, wow, like, you know, the mob is out to get this thing, like, maybe I'll go home. He shows up at the fucking mob boss's house, um, or, the, you know, the mob figure's house in the next scene. And immediately, the sister of the mob boss, or the half sister, walks up to the car. And just like immediately starts kissing him and is like, wow, a new person here. I don't even like like my brother's friends, which I think is the scene that most adequately um, goes back to the source material. Um, mm -hmm. And also seems to be kind of a reference to like an early Marilyn Monroe type character. But she seems to she be. She looks kind of, like her also. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, I, I, that character was very interesting because uh, she, she kind of, the, the mobster's name is Carl. Um, and then, and again, like, I, because of the fact that this is Cold War, uh, I was reading too much, and she repeats twice uh, that, like, oh, you're not one of Carl's friends. If you're not one of Carl's friends, you can be one of my friends. And I was just like, okay, so who's this Carl, and, like, what 
Who's why like, is she opposed to the like idea? Marx, of, like yeah, yeah, I was I was thinking yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and like she cool. says that like if you're not if you're not a friend of Carl's then you can be my friend and and then she repeats many times like I I I'll be a very good friend and like she yeah. says very suggestively oh, that's, all the kind of response to that that's that's so she angles <laughs> my camera is angles that's you know <laughs> yeah I mean if anything think, he could be I the think, I think my camera is the opposite of angles. Um, yeah, if you read, if you read angles, uh, you know, some of his more feminist work, I, I don't think that Mike Hammer would um, approve of any of that. <laughs> I mean, if anything, yeah. Mike Hammer would be like a, a Nietzschean kind of character, typical kind of, um, I'm trying to find my purpose in life, uh, which is basically finding my purpose in life is my purpose. Like the, or, or uh, kind of aspiring to be better than what I am right now uh, is my purpose. And, well, he's, a, and he's, kind of a Rand, he's kind of a Randian character, right? Like, uh, which interestingly enough, I don't know if I shared it in the in the group DM or whatever last night, but Ayn Rand was one of the first, was one of the only like, I don't intellectuals like, I'm putting that in quotes and air quotes intellectuals that was willing to defend Mickey Spillane at the time. Which is very mm. interesting, and later turned on him because she didn't like one of the morals of his book or whatever, like one of his later books. But during the Cold War, um, she was one of the few people that was willing to defend his books and was like, "Oh, I love the morality of it," which is like, "Yeah, of course you fucking do." He's a reactionary fucking fascist. Like, <laughs> which brings me back to Frank Miller because his book Dark Knight Returns is kind of a uh, Ayn Rand uh, version of Batman with a Mickey Spillane type uh, Batman character. Yeah, it's with the it's into it. Yeah, it's 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 a fascinating book. It, it absolutely is. But um, is, uh, is that the Batman that 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 was uh, the inspiration for the two thousand eight film? Uh, right. Which the um, one with Heath Ledger? Yeah, kinda. I, I mean, I have an argument around that because uh, uh, let's um, get to that. Let's get to that argument whole, at the end of this. Yeah. yeah. You we're, don't like want me to... half, we're barely halfway through this. Don't, don't get me started on Batman. <laughs> yeah, no, this... I, I well, know. see, I'll, I'll just put a little disclaimer. My, my take on comics is just a little bit uh, less than Andy, so... I, I, I know very little. Oh, all right. So that's more than a little bit less. <laughs> <laughs> well, my, my thing with comics is just through Kevin Smith movies, which, you know... Yeah, we got to do, do a Clerks episode. Uh, hell Yes. Hell but yes. that's, that's got to come. Like I feel like right now, going through like kind of a cold war. Work up to thing. it. Yeah, that's that's yeah. honestly one of my favorite movies though because it reminds me of like, you know, like growing up in New Paltz. Like people were just a lot like fucking clerks characters, which you know, New York, New Jersey, next to each other. <laughs> um, yeah. So he's walking into the uh, he's walking into this gangster's house pretty much, and there's literally the most I think reactionary line in the entire movie. Um, it, I I really want to see like Mike Hammer as as um like like men's rights activist like uh like because <laughs> because the line that she's like, oh like and she's saying like her um she says the thing about like her uh her, her she's like I'm a very good friend and he's like can I give you a little advice he's like uh, can you can you say this two letter word N O and she's like. <laughs> And oh, and he's like, remember that that word's your best friend. You should use that word. <laughs> that's the most. 
that's the most misogynistic line of the whole thing. Here's another line in the beginning when um, he pulls over for uh, when he pulls over the car, and he's like, "Let me guess." This is it's, it's a really weird fucking moment of dialogue, but he's like, "Let me guess." He thought no was a three letter word, and then he's like, "I ought to throw you off a cliff," which like, so you think that she might have just gotten fucking sexually assaulted, and your response is, "I should throw you off a cliff," like, <laughs> like. <laughs> <laughs> Mike Hammer is successful um, pickup artist, like men's rights activist guy. Mike Hammer is like Mike Cernovich type. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want Mike <laughs> Hammer with a lisp. Mike, <laughs> no, yeah. Mike, it's Mike Hammer. Open the door. <laughs> you ever heard of QAnon? Mike Hammer, I'm here. <laughs> Um, I can't. I can't believe. I can't believe that like they they kind of didn't make the more obvious connection with the hammer and the nail. But uh, <laughs> I, I guess like that was like an opportunity that got missed in the movie. Of yeah. all the corny lines that, that, that they, very, they missed out. That was there. a very missed opportunity. Um. So yeah. So hold on. So so the two guys, um, Charlie Max and Sugar Smallhouse, that are going around intimidating everyone. Um, on Carl Carl Avello's um, <laughs> payroll, you know, stand up when he comes outside, and he, they go into the pool house to try to fight him, and he immediately does some sleeper hold on the guy, and he falls back sleeping. And Which you uh, don't even see; you just see their feet. It, it's, yeah, it's great because, because like you know, <laughs> well, you yeah. see him go, you see him go, and then you hear him snoring. Yeah, but you you you're seeing it from like like this this low shot where it's just like yeah. the, their legs. And and then you just see the reaction of the other guy, like <gasps> it was just I, I I loved it. And the other guy kind of has the Peter Laurie, like his two eyes are facing opposite directions, which is I I, I liked that because they have the this, the thing on his face when he walks out backwards, the camera fucking tracks with him, and he's just looking inside as if he's terrified. So Carlo Avello sits down with him, and uh, I didn't totally get all of the dialogue in this, but. Um, so Carlo Bello seems very friendly, like a mob figure would in every movie, pretty much. And, you know, he accuses him of putting the bomb in his car, and he admits him and says, you know, it's a little bit, um, he's like, yeah, that was a little bit, uh, what, I don't, I don't remember exactly the term he uses, but, uh, you know, like lowbrow or something, like, <laughs> and, um, yeah, so he's basically uh, going back and forth with this mob figure, like, in, in the classic noir dialogue kind of way. And then at one point, He's basically asking for his price to stop, you know, whatever. And um, the the I didn't I didn't totally get why he took such offense to this line, but he says this line. Um, hold on. He, he says that he says that one line where he's like he's like yeah, just make an exploratory offer, um, you know, to to name your price. And all of a sudden, like Carlo Bello is extremely offended and is like, I think that time is 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 long gone. I don't. Do any of you guys get really why? Because he's basically asking, "What's your price?" and he's like, "I don't know what my price is." So he's like, "You name a price." Is it, is he just tired of his of his like going back and forth with them? Or seems like a question of like loyalty almost. It's like I can't believe that you would even go there. Like it's the kind of thing that you're 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 insulting uh, the the nature of this uh, request or like the the demand that has been placed on you or like the kind of you know thing you're up against by even suggesting that you have a choice uh, yeah. is what I took that as. But on the other hand, that also kind of ties into this idea of, uh, it's interesting that there is a woman and then the mob and then 
you know, his private eye practice. And then there's a woman associated with that. And then there's a woman associated with the big secret uh, mm-hmm. that, you know, that he's after. Uh, and each of these is kind of like characterized by these interactions, different shapes of interactions with these women. Um, and, and it's fascinating how in this scene, um, especially the mob character seems to suggest that he should have more of like a, a, a blinder kind of commitment to the ask that has been placed before him, which kind of almost suggests uh, a form of like draft or like a Senate committee, you know, hearing or whatever that yeah. uh, you kind of have to just like, you know, um, fall in line and, and don't ask too many questions. Uh, and and if you ask too many questions, you lost your opportunity. Now you don't have a choice. You have to be, you know, you have to face the uh, the wrath of the, the 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 kind of you know exile or. Um, there also that. seems to be. I mean, I don't want to read too much into it, but like it seems to almost be like if, if we're going with this, like you know, um, this metaphor of like Mike Hammer as America, like he wants vengeance and he wants con like conquest at this point. You know what I mean? Like he wants to kill everybody in the mob. Like he doesn't want this like half-assed like oh you pay me off and I'll go away thing and it's kind of like almost like an old world mentality of like all right we'll pay you off and you go away and you know you handle your stuff and we'll handle ours and he's saying like no there is no price like I don't I don't even know what I'm fucking looking for number one number two like there's no price I'm just here to fucking destroy you and it almost feels like like I mean as like as America goes at this point during the cold war it's like America has burned all bridges you know what I mean like it, it, it's like this old-fashioned version of like, oh, like, you know, I'll give you this these resources and we'll call it even. And he's like, no, I'm going to fucking kill all of you. I need to be the dominant one. I need to, you know, this is not about resources. This is not about money at this point. This is about power. Um, so that's, I guess that's kind of where I left that off. Um, but yeah, so the next, uh, so the next scene is, is, kind of the funniest one where he uh he follows it up to the carmen trivago character who's uh honestly the actor's name is the funniest thing i've ever heard fortuno bonanova is the actor's name apparently so he's this opera singer and he comes in and there's this beautiful opera music and um that the guy's listening to and he's like speaking to his he's speaking to his like record player being like she loves him she's dead like this whole (laughs) dramatic performance he comes in and scares the shit out of the guy, and you know this is this is kind of I guess where where my American foreign policy as Mike Hammer uh, idea came from because the first thing he does is he goes oh that's a beautiful record it's a collector's item and he breaks the record in front of the guy and it's kind of like <laughs> like you know the guy's like the guy's like kind of uh, it's like once again like this old world mentality of like you know culture music those are important things and Mike Hammer's like no like I'm gonna use that smash it in front of you and then like intimidate the fuck out of you mm. um <laughs> so yeah so he, he says that his friend is he is, the, the whole dialogue on that scene was very weird but he's like his friend i guess had a bunch of money that he was going to come into and he was telling his friend it was dangerous and he's like i say i'm a very rich i'm a very poor i know everything i know nothing which you mm. know known unknowns you know at least uh right 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 <laughs> yeah so I mean, when, you, you, if yeah. if you have the whole line, you should probably because it's a great line, and and like he kind of uh, finishes with uh, you have no fear, or like this information means everything, or it means nothing at all, or something yeah. like that. And oh, and man. it's the kind of thing. Yeah. I'm find it, but uh, just keep. Go- I'm gonna keep going, but I'm trying to. I'm trying to find. Uh, 
fine kiss because he because he does say that this information both means everything and nothing at the same time yeah. and and it's the kind of thing that uh, donald rumsfeld began like at the beginning he showed uh, that he was saying something to the effect of they could be developing this weapon that weapon uh, they could be developing something that we don't even know uh, but they're develop they're definitely developing it and 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 i guess like that that scene kind of clearly lays that out like that particular line uh, especially the whole we don't um what is it fear uh, sorry it, it means everything and it means nothing at all i think that's the that's the kind of phrasing yeah i was actually kind of getting flashbacks in that scene to um my uh my, my sister's wedding uh whenever we were getting the uh, tuxes for it um i took my uh then future brother-in-law he's my, my brother-in-law now but uh, uh we went to this uh, little shop in staten island because he's from staten island he's this uh six six italian right and so, so we get to this, uh, to the shop, and uh, it's like this little Italian guy is uh, working there, and he's just like, "Oh yeah," and he's like telling all these stories, and you realize, like, like partway through the story, he's telling stories about the characters from Goodfellas and telling stories from, from characters from Donnie Brasco, and, <laughs> and and like, uh, you know, there's like, he's just like, but I never asked him what was going on, and, and it's just, uh, you know, there was something about the, the the opera singer that reminded me of the guy who, who just wanted, you know, my, my brother-in-law to have the puff wedding, you know, just just you know, mm -hmm. trying to get everything just right. And um, when he was having, um, he has alopecia, but the thing is though, uh, which means he has like no eyebrows, no hair, but he still grows a little bit of peach fuzz on top of his head, and he wanted to get that shaved off. And one of the things he always finds relaxing is to have it uh, done with a hot shaving cream and uh, a straight razor. And he's like, he's like, I can't find a place to do it before the wedding. I don't know what to do. And the little tiny guy's like, call him a cousin. He got you. He's, he's right next door. He, 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 he do you up really good. Just tell him I sent you. Tell him you're getting married. Uh, but it just very much reminded me of the uh, of this uh, character in the movie. Yeah, um, I, I don't see that. I, for some reason, I can't find that quote. But he says, <laughs> I, I do like the quote where he goes, please, what do you want to know? I tell you. Raimondo is my friend. Very sad. Always sad. He's how you call engineer scientist. Very smart. Very bright. Very sad. He goes, why was he married? <laughs> he goes, what was he so sad about? He goes, well, for the way the world is, you see, very sad. Like, uh. I I remember the line was something like, he says, I've been very rich. I've been very poor. He's like, this means everything. This means nothing at all. Which, mm -hmm. I, yeah, I think is a, an amazing line of, of, of dialogue. Um, you know, considering, like, it, it's kind of, and it's kind of a metaphor for the Cold War, right? Like, all of this in the end doesn't really mean anything. I mean, you know, we're kind of getting scientists from from Europe to come here and, you know, work for us to develop, like, these nuclear weapons and to develop, like, all these different things for the CIA, which I don't know if they knew about that part of it yet, but, like, you know, like, all of these different technology, and, you know, and that was, like, reported in newspapers. Like, at, at times they would push back on uh, Operation Paperclip, which was when they were bringing Nazi scientists in, and they would push back in papers. So, like, we knew yeah. about that, and we knew about... You know, they brought in Nazi spies as well to, yeah. uh, you know, do Cold War activities. So it's like kind of this thing, like all of this is kind of meaningless um, in the end. So yeah, I think that's I think that's a great um, line of it. But like I don't know, I, the the scene I remembered from this because I watched it in in college. I took a noir class, so we watched like something like fifteen noir movies in fifteen weeks or something, and it was a great class. And uh, I actually sent the professor from that class this and like. And I was like, at 8 p.m., we're, we're going to be talking about Kiss Me Deadly. But, um, you know, I, I think that um, um, the scene that I remember the most is him breaking the, the record. And to me, in that moment, it kind of felt like this, this vision of America as kind of burning down everything that, you know, that, that I guess in the old 
in the old world or like, you know, in Europe or in all these different places were important, like burning down culture, burning down, you know, like anything intelligent, like there, there's no intelligence, there's no music, there's no art, it's not important. Like the only thing that's important is like beating the Soviet Union. And it kind of felt like that um, in that moment, like the most, the most pure distillation of it. The entire movie and the development and the building of uh, Mike Hammer's character, uh, if you see the arc of the character doesn't tend towards like horrific realization about the truth, but more like a surrender to it that like he kind of sees the power of what he's up against every second and he sees it more and more increasingly. And in the end, he kind of folds. Uh, and you could argue that like he basically, um, I don't know if this you could even consider this to be like a recruitment uh, movie of uh, Mike Hammer into the you know the, the the kind of troops of the of the Cold War because he's like here he is he's an internal actor who's just like fighting against uh, fighting his little like as you said he's like a petty thief type of character yeah. but like a petty kind of small small penny, time penny, guy penny anti penny anti sorry yeah I, love, I, I, I confused two things. <laughs> Yeah, um, uh, but, but yeah, basically no. he's a he's a character who doesn't really have any, you know, uh, he's not part of any institution. He's not got any institutional backing. He's a maverick guy. He's just a solo character. And, and he has this sidekick uh, woman who's basically, whose whole purpose is to help him. Uh, I don't think she has any definition beyond that. Um, and and thanks to... She's essentially for him. Yeah. For him, right? Like she does, yeah. she basically, I mean, come on, like if that is not more obvious than anything else, right? Like she sells herself to uh, to serve him in a, in a kind of way. Yeah. Um, and, and, and also like, this is the scene in which like he uh, kind of uh, starts to see the power of what he's up against. And, and every scene from here on, he's, he tends to become more and more cowed by it and and be like wow and and, and I, I remember at one point uh, i'll let you get to it but like uh, that he actually visibly kind of almost gives up um yeah. and i would like to discuss yeah. that and I, and I wanted to touch on that i wanted to touch yes. on that when it when it appears and that is something right. that i wanted to talk about um for sure so all right so so basically he's challenged this mob not even knowing what he's looking for not knowing what he wants he's challenged the mob and basically said oh fuck you i'm gonna keep going I mean, essentially, you know what I mean. Um, so he drives to he drives to see Carmen Trivago, which I kept on thinking about. Uh, where in the world is Carmen San Diego? Every time they say Carmen Trivago, <laughs> um, it sounds you just so like singing the song. Uh, um, so uh, yeah, so um, Nick has done the investigating and he has some information about the car bomb. Um, so, but he he needs to secure this this woman that. Uh, this Lily Carver, the, the the roommate at his place, so he, he needs to make sure that she gets to this place. So he leaves for for like a little bit, and uh, Nick crawls into the car to work on it, and he's working on it. And somebody, and once again, you only see the feet, which is like a repeated motif throughout this movie. You know, you just see the feet, and then you see the the, the lever um, underneath the car. So he's working on the car, and somebody, you know, who you assume is probably those the same guys whose feet you saw last time, pulls the lever and crushes him underneath the car which I, I think once again this movie really shows um when it comes to like these grotesque like disgusting uh murder scenes like I, sometimes it feels like the less you see the more impacting it is and i think that there's an argument that the Hayes code 
there's an argument that the Hayes Code, um, you know, kind of had to make directors almost like ingenious about the way that they did this. Um, right. Because I think that if we saw, if we saw him get crushed from like a distance and we saw it in the most like gory, grotesque way you possibly could, it wouldn't have had the impact. It would have been like, all right, well, here's another like incredibly uh, disturbing scene. And it wouldn't really, like, you know what I mean? So the fact that you don't see it makes it so much more uh, resonating. I think the, the next like, scene um, is, uh, sorry, yeah, go on. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say that it, the fact that you don't see it, it's kind of like in suspense in a way. It kind of leaves mm -hmm. the audience uh, kind of feeling that you, they know that, that, something like that something like that has happened, but it's like in, in suspense and like a yeah. great sort of, uh, what do you call it? So he comes back and the friend is holding Nick's hand and he's like, crying and he's like no more baba boom which <laughs> objectively a funny way to report that your friend's dead but you know whatever <laughs> um wait does he say that i, I feel like, yeah, I he's, like, he's, like he's like nick's dead nick's dead no more baba boom don't go baba he, boom, no wow more. yeah that is that is wow I, i'm actually i, I can't I'm believe saying. i missed that damn but when my wife passes if she passes before me that's how i'm going to tell the children Oh, man. <laughs> That's dark. <laughs> I don't even feel good about laughing about that. So he drives to Belda's apartment, which once again, she's... I, it kind of sucks that we don't see what she's been getting up to the whole movie because it seems incredibly interesting. She claims that she seduced an art, someone who's doing an art collection and founds out, finds out the lead, uh, or Dr. Sobrin. And she's like, does that name mean anything to you? And he tells her that, um, you know, he tells her that, that Nick's dead. And, you know, I think the, the best line in the entire movie, which, which calls back to, um, you know, it, it calls back to this whole known unknown thing. Um, you know, her line about the great what's it, which I'm trying to find it. He goes, uh, oh, he goes, he goes, Mike, all your friends are going to get it one of these days. What is it you're after, Mike? And she says, uh, something Nicholas Raimondo had and the girl knew about, something very valuable. Was, is it worth Nick's life or Christina's or Raimondo's or Kowalski's or mine? He goes, or, Lee, or, Nick, or Lily Carver's or Christina's roommate, which honestly um, makes her point. Like, you know, it kind of just makes her point. But all right. Um, it was up in my apartment. They tried to get her last night. And he goes, they, a wonderful word. And who are they? They're the nameless ones who kill people for the great what's it. Does it exist? Who cares? Everyone everywhere is so involved in the fruitless search for what? Why don't you turn her over to Pat? It's his job to protect her. She needs protection or to question her if that's what's needed. Why are you always trying to make a noise like a cop? Which I think the great what's it kind of embodies this movie because throughout it, he doesn't know what the fuck he's looking for. You know, like he's just after something. He's after revenge. He's after vengeance. But he's also after something. Like everybody is getting killed for some reason. And he's kind of just pushing it to the limit of that. And instead of just like falling back and going, you know what? Like I, I need to just, you know, leave this situation like he's pushed past that and he's just meddling in things which is why you know the american foreign policy metaphor i think is great because you know we kind of are, are obviously always pushing our way into countries meddling in those countries being incredibly violent destroying them and not quite ever knowing like what we're looking for and i feel like that kind of distills the point of this movie and continually as the movie you know as as we get to the climax uh distills the point of this movie I like the I like your uh, interpretation of the novelization as as the, of the screenplay as speaking to against the novelization yeah. because the great what's it 
I can imagine that being a very innocuous, like um, even they live type of like truth, uh, which is that like it, it's it's a very you know you're being controlled, you're being you're being played, you're being tricked, you're being deceived type of big lie type of truth uh, that's being insinuated. But mm-hmm. on the other hand, you do see that like the the kind of intangibility of the what's it um, becomes becomes like. Um, especially in the case of a person like Donald Rumsfeld, since we began talking about him, uh, the question of like, why are you doing this? And why are your friends doing this? And what does this even involve? Uh, the story unwittingly tells on itself, uh, where but because of Mike being the reactionary character that he is, uh, the what's it that he is after is also the thing that he is reacting against in the first place. Which is which is the which is the thing like that that is that remains unresolved for him, um, and I mean like I have a I have a way to tie this all with the with the ending, which is kind of uh, interesting that like the that the ending actually offers a commentary on this. I feel like um, which which I'd like to hear your your thoughts on when we get to it. Uh, yeah. But I'll let you get to it meanwhile. We're all I mean you know we're getting we're getting closer and closer. Um, so he he. Uh, We're in the second scene now. Yeah. <laughs> second before last, up. I feel like. He's just woken <laughs> up. He doesn't know who he is. He finds out his name is Jason Bourne. And, <laughs> um, and no. he's Matt Damon for some reason. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Man, there's like 50 Matt Damon references that I can spell <laughs> right now, but I won't do it. That's like the first person I think of. Yeah, Matt Damon, Jason Bourne. Yeah, so... He's now he's realizing that. Um, well, all right. So this is the the next scene is the he gets drunk and it's the the Billie Holiday scene. And I think that directly referenced Billie Holiday and the problems that she had in the nineteen twenties. Um, it also, I, I don't I don't know for sure if they're going this deep with this, but you know, Billie Holiday is obviously her. Uh, you know, there's various uh, accounts, I guess, of whether when she was stopped for for drugs, like whether she actually had the drugs or whether they were planted on her, like she claimed. But you know. In, in the original novelization of this, the um, the what the great was it is heroin. Like in the end, hmm. it out, it's a shipment of heroin in a box. Like that's kind of what's been in the box the whole movie or the whole novel. Hmm. So it's interesting that you know, um, you know, so she's singing and he's at the bar and you know he's he's talking to the bartender and of course the bartender is shot and they have this dialogue and he tells the bartender that Nick's dead, which uh, you know I guess they all hung out at different points and you know together and. I'm yeah. sure they, they had a lot to talk about, and boom, <laughs> and, and the bartender also makes the bartender. He's like, he's like, Nick's dead, and he's like, no more baba boom or something like that, or like says something about baba boom, which I'm like, okay, like, <laughs> um, yeah. So um, after that, he's you know he's ridiculously drunk, passed out on the bar, and uh, he. he drives to the gas station asking, you know, who, who the letter was addressed to from the gas station in the beginning that Christina Bailey clearly uh, asked him to take that package. And the guy says, some joker named Mike. So he follows it up to the office. He opens the letter and it only says, remember me. Um, all of a sudden from behind him, the two mafia goons um, once again, uh, you know, fight him, beat the shit out of him, take him to a beat house or a beach house, a beat house, like, you know, <laughs> I'll take beach you house, yeah. yeah, so a beach house. And there's that really beautiful scene. It is a really beautiful scene where they're filming them kind of fighting on the beach. But you see like that 
sprawling beach landscape and yeah, and, and again, it's yeah. a pan that they do that where, where they you yeah. know really show you where they're at uh as and it makes the almost seem futile i think right like the way that the beach is so beautiful and they're kind of just like tripping over themselves to fight on it um and those weird cuts too I they go all the way sorry yeah go on no uh, every single time they, they they punch them they just cut to like this reaction shot of getting hit it was just yeah uh, it, it was interesting because like three stooges it's almost like three stooges-esque i'd say kind of yeah they yeah. go into the water and like for some reason they go directly into the water like they actually push each other and make sure that they go into the water and and i i, I mean like it's it's funny um i grew up watching tamil movies like indian movies are kind of notorious for this uh where the 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 kind of action choreography is not especially in the older movies the action choreography is not uh, on point enough so you will see the way by which the actors are guiding the action in a particular direction that they're like hey you got to go in that direction and some places you'll even see because the editing is not sharp enough that you know the actor is somewhat even telling the character to go fall in this direction as he's punching uh, and stuff like that so here it kind of felt a little bit like the the what's his name mike hammer was almost like directing the people through his like punches and shoves that like hey you should yeah. go into the water this time because we're too far from the water and we need to be getting wet or something like that. This, this, uh, I like to imagine G Jack saying, the great what's it? The great what's it? I think it's very, it's very telling. The great what's it? What is it? The absence of ideology. <laughs> um, the absence of ideology. That's the, that's the, yeah. Yeah. Drop. The, what is in the box? It does not matter. It's, it's the absence of ideology. Calling us photo. Um, so makes no, sense. Uh, heroin. Heroin is absence of ideology. You're getting rid yeah, of everything. No, right? Superstructure true. comes falling. Yeah. <laughs> I I think it's really funny that. All right. I, I'm, we'll talk about this at the end of this because I want to get through it. But I, I have stuff to say about the differences between the novelization and what they were allowed to do because of the Hayes Code and, and the ways that they changed it. And I have a question about that at the end. But um, anyway. <laughs> so. Um, so they get him eventually into this bedroom. They tie him up by the hands. And, uh, you know, it's, it's these guys, uh, Charlie Max and Sugar Smallhouse, the same guys from the, um, the mafia thing and, and Carlo Bello. So Carlo Bello comes in to question him and gives him, uh, like sodium pentothal, I guess, which is like the truth serum. And, you know, they comes in to question him and he's gotten one hand free from the ropes because they didn't do a very good job tying him. And when he leans in close, he's like, I got something to tell you, come in close. Which you never want to do if you're a mob, like, you should know at this point, like, as a mob guy, like, don't come, like, if the person says come in close, like, you know they're going to do something. And yeah, you stand back. <laughs> I want to whisper it. <laughs> I need to, people can't hear it, and they're like, all right. Well. Live over here. <laughs> um, so he, he ties a bellow after beating the shit out of him to the bed, the same way that he was. And the guys come in, and they think a bellow is him. And the one guy stabs Avello, um, like you know, like stabs him, killing him, um, thinking that it's 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 uh, Mike Hammer, and looks up and you know realizes at the last minute it's not um, it's his boss, which you know, mm. not something you want to do yeah. if you want to read. You don't you don't kill the wrong guy. Yeah. So <laughs> he uh, he 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 beats up and I guess kills the other the other uh, the, the two you know mob goons because he's already gotten the boss down. And, um, and and leaves the beach house again. <laughs> and he gets there, and Lily Carver is there and dressed. Um, 
he's he's trying to figure out the sonnet remember me um and then he really he realizes that something might be inside of the body itself so he goes to the the, the autopsy place and there's an incredibly fucking creepy um creepy autopsy uh, yeah. yeah carl yeah, rose the, the coroner yeah, yeah. and bush's so, brain the coroner kind of is Good like awesome I, I feel like I feel like this movie kind of had a very great foresight into like how video games work now, almost because like first is like the Italian guy and he's like, now that you have completed your quest, like I will give you this information, like you know what I mean. But then there's this this moment where the guy's like, and he keeps giving him money, <laughs> but finally because you know this my camera, he gets tired of giving him money after giving him like two hundred bucks. He doesn't have more than that, and the guy still won't give him the key, so he just jams the guy's hand into the drawer and and just fucks it up and completely just ruins this this coroner's hand because he's decided like oh i'm not going to keep getting bribed like i gave you 200 bucks like that should be enough and the guy finally gives him the key um and has hack stamped on it which kind of seems like a reference to huac like we were talking about like the house on americans committee an American committee. So they, yeah, they yeah, yeah, yeah. I was thinking about that too. Yeah. House on American is what I thought of when I saw it. happened a year, a year before this movie came out. So this is like a very, you know, like, so they drive mm. over to the Hollywood uh, Athletic Club. And, um, and yeah, so he, he has, once again, he has a tough reaction trying to bribe the, the attendant at the club. And once the guy doesn't want to bribe, he grabs the guy and starts shaking him, which I guess at this point, that's just his move now. Like he doesn't even want to, be diplomatic about it <laughs> so he finally gives him the key to the locker and it's nick it's nick romando the the you know the scientist that is friends with the opera singer the scientist opera singer guy and um so inside the locker is this random box that's like an extremely hot box and the guy kind of uh references like oh like what is it like it's very hot in this room so he opens it for a second his hand burns like his arm burns and uh you know he gets outside again holding the box and lily carver is gone and, you know, I guess he assumes that the, the mob has kidnapped her or something. And finally, you know, he meets up with Pat. And honestly, that, this is another one of my favorite scenes. I, like, I, I quoted it and sent it to you guys earlier. Um, the, so <laughs> finally, we're, about to, we're, we're, we're realizing, like, all right, so there is something. There is something that, you know, that he should have been looking for. And, like, it is, a, a, a you know, an actual... Um, you know, an actual physical object. And my favorite, one of my favorite lines of this whole movie is, listen, Mike, listen carefully. I'm going to pronounce a few words. They're harmless words. Just a bunch of letters scrambled together, but try to understand what they mean. Manhattan Project, Los Alamos, Trinity. Which, <laughs> amazing, <laughs> amazing line. And that's, and that's the moment that you're talking about where he kind of falls and, and like defeated almost. Like realizing, yeah. that, realizing that this is so far above his fucking pay grade so far above anything that he thought it was going to be like assuming it was going to be something valuable in the box but like not assuming it was going to be a fucking atomic like an atomic weapon or an atomic bomb in the box you know what i mean like he's kind of dejected at that point just falls over like this but he's still looking i guess um earlier he realized that velda had been kidnapped he's looking for velda um which was something we should have probably touched on <laughs> but, which, yeah and also another video game reference yeah. <laughs> looking for princess peach and uh, <laughs> <laughs> or so he's Daisy, realizing, he's realizing he, he he runs up to um to Ray Diker, and he like kind of um, you know, well first the attendant he runs to the attendant, then the attendant's dead, the the guy that showed him the box in the first place, 
and he runs into uh, Ray Diker, who's been drugged. Um, or well, I guess I guess this is a mob guy. I don't really know who this is, but he runs in, and the guy's been drugged, and he looks at the bottle of, of sleeping po- like sleeping pills, and it says uh, Doctor Sobrin, who's the original person that Velda said his name, and said, "Does that mean anything to you?" And all of a sudden, the name is ringing out in his head, like, "Does that mean anything to you? Does that mean anything to you? You like that or something?" Which is just a very sexual way of like, you know, being like, "You like that? Does that mean anything to you?" Just, I don't know. It was funny. Right. That and out. also the name that the, his name is Soberin and yeah. uh, and it makes sense now because it had something to do with heroin. Um, mm-hmm. I wonder if it's the same in the book as well, like or if it's if it's Soberin in the book as well. Or yeah. So um so he he runs back to the beach cottage. Um you know the the beach the beach cottage that uh, Doctor Soberin is, is staying at because I guess it's his beach cottage. And Doctor Soberin is getting ready to leave, and it turns out Lily Carver or the person he thought was Lily Carver. One of the things that Pat has told him is that the, the real Lily Carver has been found dead in a river. So the, so the person that he thought was Lily Carver the entire movie is not. And, you know, the, like, so the woman that he thinks is Lily Carver, uh, you know, they have, they have the box um, at, at, this, at this cottage. And they're standing there, um, they're standing there, like, and, and she's asking, like, what's in the box? What's in the box? What's in the fucking box? No. <laughs> 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 no, he's he's trying to explain. <laughs> he's trying to explain that you know the thing in the box you can't you can't split it like it's just one thing and he wants to give it to her and she decides you know what I'm just gonna take it and so she shoots her fucking boyfriend or husband or whatever because she wants to see what's in the box and uh, <laughs> so he falls back dead and the last minute he's like. I'll tell you where to bring it to, but don't bring it there, which dude just died. Like, don't, don't say that. Like, just, you know what I mean? Like, so yeah, yeah. finally, finally, she, although you, you missed my favorite line though, the whole what? like women are like, uh, with your cat, like instincts or, or whatever. I don't know. Oh, what was it? It was about women, women are like cats. Yeah. He also makes <laughs> some weird, he also makes some weird, like a bunch of like, Pandora's box reference, obviously that's the most Pandora's obvious. box, yeah, I remember that. He makes yeah. reference to King Lot. He makes all of these like uh, mythological references and like biblical references while telling her that that's well, why then, he wants whatever's in the box. Yeah, so she, and being sexist kind of, in a weird way. Yeah, sexist but also academic. Um, yes. <laughs> that's what we were going for with GTA. Just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's why we supported Bernie Sanders. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> You're Good just point. like all of you, all of you women watching, just like Queen Lot. I don't understand. <laughs> Pandora's I don't Lot. understand. If you vote for Joe Biden, you'll turn into salt. <laughs> um, no, so, so you know, yeah, no, there's all these sneaky sexist references, and he's kind of toying with her and assuming that they're going to go away together, but she just decides to shoot him because she's now obsessed with finding out what's in the box. What's in the fucking box? So, um, oh. So in the end, uh, you know, Mike Hammer comes in. She shoots Mike Hammer, and then she finally opens the box and catches on fire because she somehow let off this this nuclear weapon that you know that they've uh, nuclear really, nu- nuclear. <laughs> no, nuclear. Atomic, this is a nuclear weapon. This atomic nuclear. this this <laughs> this atomic bomb has just been let off, and everybody's you know. So the house is now on fire. Somehow it doesn't take out everything, but you know the, the reaction from the 
atomic weapon sets everything on fire, including her, which is a reference to the novelization because in the novelization she gets too close to a flame and she catches on fire in the end. Mm. That's the last uh, the last scene of the of the of the novel. So um, he finds Velda, he beats in the door to rescue her, and everything is caught on fire. And uh, yeah, so they escape. They go into the water. Yeah, they go into That's the, the water. last scene. Yeah. Yeah. Once again. No. So uh, I go for it. Yeah, I yeah. kind of wanted to ask. Uh, I mean, like, I guess, like, we can keep this conversation going um, even as he comes back because it's a it's a pretty uh, big question. Uh, what do you make of the concept of the imposter, like the the woman who is pretending to be somebody else, uh, as opposed to at first you have the woman who basically you know was was kind of revealing was not telling who she was, but she was kind of coming to the point where she was going to tell uh, who she was. And the, and the second one, um, the, the, the woman who works with them, of course, we, we know. And the, uh, the, the third, I suppose, woman uh, is the one with the mob. Um, and she also kind of like, you know, is a little more transparent. Uh, despite and, and again, like all three are would would arguably fit the category of like the femme fatale, femme, femme fatale and uh, uh, a person femme who fatale. femme fatale and uh, would would basically be uh, a destructive uh, force um, unto themselves. But the the last character uh, is the only one who pretends to be somebody else, which kind of like struck me as odd, and also wondered if that was like some kind of I wondered if that was like some kind of anti-Soviet uh, reference, as opposed to like more of a, uh, you know, on this side of the of the aisle. So, what are your thoughts on the imposter? I, you know, honestly, this is probably a better question for Forrest because uh, I, I tried to read the book. I, I could not find a copy of it, um, like a, an audio uh, book I could listen to before this. Ebook. I don't do ebooks because uh, I'm a slow reader and uh, I've never finished an ebook. Lord knows Isn't that's that kind of the same thing. <laughs> no, audiobooks are different, man. Um, oh, really? Yeah, audiobooks. Yeah, ebooks are that. like words on a. Oh, screen. okay. Yeah, audiobooks I have used. Yeah. Yeah, audiobooks. I, I exclusively have been doing audiobooks lately because uh, my eyes are just so tired after like editing yeah. and all that. No, I, I, I prefer reading paper books if I'm going to be reading and I actually get. Yeah. Um, I'm, a lot more out of it than audio book, you know, than I, an audio book, something I can listen to and do something else like draw or yeah, right, drive yeah. or whatever. Um, but, but like, if I'm trying to really like study and break something down, I want to actually be reading it so I can take notes and, and yeah, you know, start and stop and, and it slows down my reading process. But that's I have okay. uh, I have a pretty bad ADHD. So like I actually take in information better when I'm like doing something else. So a lot of times, like yeah. lately, I've been I've been uh, biking a lot and like walking a lot, and I like listen to an audio. Stalking for sales. Yeah, so I like I, I I walk and you know I exercise and like the more I exercise, the more information I can process, which is interesting. So, but yeah. yeah, it's the same thing with me. You know, I go on I go on a long walk. I put on a podcast or a, or a, an ebook, or yeah. if I'm like in the store, I just have my headphones on and I just you know consume yeah. what i can um so yeah so so we've broken this down wait so what was your what was the question that we were going it, on it was actually a really good question it was uh, kind of geared towards you about the femme fatale and the uh secret identity is that is that the yeah the imposter more like because the, yeah. the i mean all of them all of them are basically kind of twisted all women in this story um i kind of show mike uh you know up in their in their respective ways um and 
the only one who is actually the first character as in i walk through this the first character uh, is Clor Cloris Leachman's character who basically you know is almost going to reveal who she is but she's kind of toying with the idea uh, but otherwise she's being more or less an honest actor uh, the woman who is with him uh, Velda is kind of more of a almost takes care of him so she is more transparent uh yeah. and the and, and mother, even the lady a mother, a mother figure almost i mean right yeah yeah a mother figure and and the lady with the mob is kind of like uh throws herself at him and and reveals more of her than she should probably uh emotionally um uh, as well and kind of this last character uh what's her name i forgot her name lily carver uh and and the the alias which i think is her name is gabriel or something uh she's the only one who pretends to be somebody else and that makes me wonder who is she pretending to be and uh who is she really um and what is she supposed to be portraying well she's she's i mean you know she's pretending to be helpless i think is the most important um sure. you know like like her her helplessness you know he has to help her through all of this and it's i mean it's obviously a distraction to him and she wants to just get her hands on the box the box because because uh I, I, it kills me that she literally says what's in the box during her <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. um no so but then i think she's kind of the personification of of like an almost i don't want to say third world but i mean third world in the movement kind of way like like almost like a greed you know what i mean like this this greed that seems to pervade i mean through through our our society but also throughout the world of like you know this this realization that like cuz i think that the doctor is almost i mean the doctor is clearly working for the soviets like you know he's mm -hmm. saying he's saying like you know give the bomb to somebody and he's like you know you shouldn't give the bomb to somebody but like like that's that's the ultimate goal and i i guarantee you you know if they wanted to give that to the uh american government like they would have just done it you know what i mean so assumably who they're giving that to is the soviet union and she just decides to take it for herself and and in some senses, I mean, it's just the, the classic noir thing. But you know, there, there's a there's an item, and everybody wants it for themselves, like almost like the Maltese Falcon, which I think that this movie is referencing quite a bit. But um, at the same time, you know, there's like this impulse of like, well, she's not aligned with Mike, and she's clearly not aligned with the the doctor, who's I think really ends up being like the the Soviet character. Um, she's aligned for herself, and there's like a self selfishness of it. Um, but there's also like uh you know i mean it's 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 greed and it's like this pandora's box level of uh of uh yeah it it's it's also like uh you're muted i'll say uh it's also interesting how um this this character um uh, kind of uh damn i lost my train of thought uh but uh i think it's because you were saying something and you got muted i thought that uh you were going to say something um but uh i'll let i'll let you oh yeah i got the point um now that you uh, open the screen i was going to say that in the article they talk about a third party altogether a cabal of something and and yeah. that kind of gets me thinking about what who's the person uh who is this third party and and that's kind of interesting who who we think it could be i mean i I don't think that this is that deeper reference into it, but in the in the early 1950s, there's the start of like the third worldist movement, like you know what I mean, like um, mm -hmm. like 
you know, so like Indonesia, I mean, and Indonesia, uh, Egypt, like India, like, you know what I mean? Like, uh, there's that there's, yeah. there's a movement towards, um, like kind of nationalism rather than a, a dichotomy of the world, like building, building themselves up. And I don't think that that's what that's a reference to, but it's interesting that at least, um, in the American context, like the Eisenhower administration took that as if you're not, um, if you're not aligned with us, you're aligned with them. And it's like, no, like they were not aligned with the Soviet Union either. They're aligned with themselves. But I, I don't necessarily think that's mm -hmm. what it's a reference to. Um, I think it is it's following along with the source material, to be honest. Like she ends up, this, that character ends up, you know, like taking the box for herself, which obviously the box is full of heroin. So, <laughs> but um, it's, it's an interesting question. Uh, definitely, I don't have an answer for it necessarily. I don't. I don't want to believe that that's what they were trying to say by it. Um, but but at the same time, like it, it's kind of an anti. It's kind of an anti-atomic weapon. Um, uh, like you know, whoever gets the atomic weapon is going to you know at least in this moment where a full uh, Cold War paranoia, whoever gets this weapon, no matter who it is, is going to use it. Um, you know, like no matter what group it is. They're, they're going to be drawn into either using it or just opening it and, and, and causing this devastation. So it's, you know, it, it feels like kind of a warning rather than a, a exacting um, measure. But Revenge. Chef is one of the greatest movies of all time, and I'll stand by that. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> it's just it just seemed like the right thing to to, to play yeah. for this. <laughs> um. Yeah. I, I wanted to. Uh, we weren't going to survive if I did this on YouTube, like. But I wanted to cut the. Uh, I wanted to cut her saying, "What's in the box? What's in the box?" With Brad Pitt going, "What's in the box? What's in the fucking box?" <laughs> Yeah, that's funny. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you, was that a reference to this, you think? UHF? Uh, <laughs> no, uh, Seven. Um, I, this movie seems to have inspired a lot of different movies. I don't necessarily, yeah. like, but, like, it does seem like it. Like, the way they say it is very similar when she's like, what's in the box? What's in the box? I, it's, I don't know. <laughs> It's not nothing. She shouldn't open yeah. <laughs> So, all right. So I wanted to, I guess I wanted to end this since we have zero people watching right now at this point. Are you, are you um, serious? I wanted to, well, we've been going oh. for almost two and a half hours. So I wouldn't, you know. People I would, will watch it eventually. So it's not yeah. like. No, but I wanted to end it with this question, I guess. Um, and, and I'll set it up like this. So the original, um, the original, uh, point of the of the novel is that you know it was an anti it was an anti not necessarily anti-government but like an anti-court and bureaucracy kind of message where um well someone's watching it again thank god um <laughs> <laughs> all right we can go for another 40 minutes so, no so there was like so kind of um 
Lily Car or no, originally Christina Bailey. I don't think that was her name in the in the novel, but um, she she was kind of gonna rat on the mob, which it it, it continues with the story of this because in that the ultimate bad guy is Carl Avello, who's you know who's in this uh, seems to be a very low figure, but in in the in the novelization it seems like the the end goal is to bring down Carl Avello, bring down the mob, which is already a big enough task for my camera to achieve, like without adding the atomic part of it. But Carl Lovello is in love with uh, Lily Carver's character, you know, not actually Lily Carver, but that character. And he ends up owing a bunch of money to like mob bosses overseas because they use all this heroin. So they get, so he's supposed to be like this figure that brings the heroin to the United States. And they use all this heroin together, like, like literally thousands of dollars worth of heroin. And then they kind of dip on the mob and he's kind of working back his debt. And he's like this, and he's like this figure, like this shadowy figure that could be anybody and looks like a businessman. And you know, um, the way that Mickey Swain describes all of his associates, it's a very pre uh, Mario Puzo, um, like way of looking at the mob because they're all these like businessmen looking figures, I guess that mm. could, could kind of, they're like every man. And in the end, you know, there's the shipment of heroin that they're supposed to be selling back and that's what's in the, in the box in the end. And just as she tries to um, shoot my camera a second time, she catches fire, which is mm -hmm. clearly what the reference to her, you know, um, going up in this blaze is. But with the, the original script of the- Stairway to heaven. Yeah. <laughs> there we go. The original, so the original um, script was a lot more like the novelization, but they decided they didn't want heroin in a movie on the Hayes Code, and they didn't want um, this kind of mafia like, like back and forth, like the, you know, because it was too. They were too brutally going after these gangsters, I guess, and the moral was too obscured. So they changed it it's to too dark, probably. Yeah, so they changed it to um, being atomic scientists, and you know, the atom bomb being, which makes it a, a way more subversive movie. But I guess. Um, my my question is, how much of this do you think was, you know, a, a kind of a leftist collaboration? Because you know, when we read, like, I read the the Criterion article that I that I pulled up, and I'll pull it up again, that was talking about how, um, you know, Robert Aldrich at the time um, was incredibly uh, sympathetic to the to um, like a like a leftist perspective, but because he was related to Nelson Rockefeller as his nephew or whatever. Um, was was able to uh yeah so ironically Aldrich himself was something of a leader of personal rebellion um he was a scion of a prominent rhode island family his grandfather nelson Aldrich, served as a u.s senator his uncle was ambassador to great britain during the period uh, kiss me deadly was made his aunt married john rockefeller and his first cousin was nelson rockefeller mm. so he was able to kind of make this because the house and american activities committee um refused to go after somebody that connected to the rockefeller family but at the same time, his his uh his view of his view and uh you know Bezeride's view, who wrote it, like wrote the screenplay, was um you know were very sympathetic to not not a Soviet perspective, but a leftist perspective in the way mm -hmm. that kind of new left figures were um, later on, you know. Um, so he kind of considered himself like a fellow traveler and like one of the few uh one of the few fellow travelers that could get away with with this because he was so connected to like people that were like, it, it would be like, um, you know, being connected to Nelson Rockefeller and, and the Rockefeller family would be like, you know, if it was like Jeff Bezos, nephew 
Uh, you know, like Jeff Bezos' nephew, um, or like Bill Gates' nephew writing this. Bill Gates' nephew would probably be more yeah. appropriate, I would imagine. Yeah. Or Hunter Biden. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, Rockefeller, Rockefeller is huge, though. No, Rockefeller was like the richest, the richest yeah. family. At the, like they were the most uh, rich, one of the there. richest families currently in the United States. And, yeah. and according uh, to Alex fact, Jones, the uh, they're trying that, to turn America into communist China. <laughs> which is which is funny because Nelson Rockefeller's big thing. I mean, you know, if you read, uh, and I know that you have Andy uh, Rick Perlstein's, you know, mo like multiple of his books chronicles how you know um, Nelson Rockefeller, Nelson Aldridge Rockefeller, um, <laughs> to be exact. If you his his campaigns as like a liberal Republican were Cold Warrior campaigns, you know, like it, so that was like kind of. They, it was incredibly anti-Soviet. Like that was his big uh, thing that made him connect to. Like I mean, I mean, the conservative movement hated him, but what made him connect to Republican voters was being like a cold warrior. Um. So, anyway, so after reading the script that Aldrich submitted in 1954, which is the same year that the House on American Activities Committee met, um, the Motion Pictures Association informed him that his, sto his story was totally unacceptable both for its treatment of narcotics and for the hero's cold-blooded, never entirely justified vigilante killings, as well as numerous items of brutality and sexual suggestiveness. It was resubmitted in early November, sans drugs and with uh, atomic spies substituted for gangsters. Um, the context shifted. The mercenary and anti-hero remained, as embodied by the muscular, smirking Meeker. A hammer is a hustler who, as one cop grudgingly allows, can sniff out information like nobody I ever saw. Not to mention a voyeuristic creep who takes sadistic pleasure in violence. See, their 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 uh, Criterion collection is way more um, forceful on this on <laughs> on their treatment. Well, well I have to yeah. say, forced. We're gonna have to probably do an episode dedicated to the MPAA because there's like there's a documentary. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of it called "This Film Is Not Yet Rated," where it, it basically yeah. takes to task how how the MP the Motion Picture Association of America works and how they go about rating movies based on. Uh, subject matter yeah like, uh, this was, this was pre-ratings this was yeah. um you know from the 1930s to the 1960s you know mm -hmm. the hades code it wasn't that they would rate the films it was that which now they do but like you know in retrospect but it wasn't that they would rate the films it was either you submit to this code or um or your movie doesn't get made this right and cannot make it so now it's uh, yeah go ahead and, and, uh, and, and, you know, towards 1960, which, like, as I said, like, I think Breathless is the first real, like, new Hollywood movie, which right. not, I don't necessarily want to watch that as a thing because <laughs> I feel like every fucking, like, college freshman is like, wow, Breathless. But, um, <laughs> you know, um, it, it kind of falls apart. Uh, you, should you should probably watch Socialism, A Love Story or something like that, which yeah. is, like, a more, more common, more, sorry, more recent. Breathless is good art, right? Yeah. Yeah, and, uh, and he made Socialism a love story. Sorry, yeah. No, no, go. Um, it was a recent movie. That's what I was saying. Like you know, Breathless is like a old old movie, but like he did make a movie in like 2013 or something like that, which was called Socialism: A Love Story. So I thought that that would be more appropriate for the kind of topics that you would like to talk about. Well, he made several. Um, he made several socialist movies. Um, throughout throughout his career, and some of them are fucking amazing. Um. But uh, hold on, I want to I want to see the list of this. He made a he made a socialist inspired movie. I forget the name of it. I think it's like Les so like Socialism or something like it. it uh, references it, but it's like kind of a um, 
it, it's it's a socialist inspired like retreatment of Alice in Wonderland. Wow, which is a pretty amazing movie. And then he also he, he made he made a bunch of like socialist movies. So that that's kind of where Godard's politics were. But I kind of feel like out of all French directors, he's the one that everyone like. You know, like he's the most like referenced one, and I feel like right. there's a lot that are like more interesting than his movies are. He made one on Maoism too, um, but uh, yeah. So, um, so they they stopped the movie from being made in the first place. Um, oh, the thing I want to say about the Hayes Code that I was interested in is that it's not just that they said, "Hey, you can't have these elements to it." It's that the Hayes Code actually directed what the plot of a movie would have to be, and the mm -hmm. reason that there wasn't any antiheroes is that as soon as um, a hero in, engaged in like kind of um, as soon as a hero engaged in, in somewhat, uh, you know, criminal or, or I guess immoral acts, they had to be killed at the end of the movie. So mm. the reason the gangster movies were allowed to, you know, be shown with like a, a villain at the center of it, like Scarface was at the time is that, you know, like every, every character would have to either end up in jail or dead. That was a, that was, you know, a villainous character. So the anti-hero trope kind of wasn't allowed to, um, you know, it wasn't allowed to thrive during that. So this is like the clo and and it started to fall apart in the late 1950s. His hold on Hollywood. So this is kind of during that. I don't think this would have been allowed to be made like you know a couple of decades before that. But um, you know, so I, I'm I'm just uh, <laughs> um, so yeah, so so uh. Oh, yeah, so the movie stops in his tracks and focuses on his excited grin as he snaps the collector's pre uh, priceless record, a crime also committed by the punks of Blackboard Jungle, where he slams a desk drawer shut on another potential informer's fingers. Um, yeah, so it, it, it's, it's, very, it's extremely interesting that um, this is made, uh, you know, and, and gets through despite the fact that the House on American Committee, like the House on American Activities Committee is only, you know, um, working through stuff uh, a year before. So this is like at the moment of maximum Cold War, um, you know, paranoia. Um, so I don't know. So I guess my, my question is that, you know, originally they wanted to stick with the heroin mafia elements of it. And obviously you couldn't. It's interesting that they would allow you to stick with the uh, the whole atomic spies part of it. You know what I mean? But like, um, I guess how much of this was their leftist treatment of it um, like kind of inspiring it and how much of it is you know how can we work around this code or maybe they're one and the same i don't know so i wanted to pass that off to everyone before we ended i mean i like the idea that it's one and the same because uh i think that's what uh, personally i say that's that's what like i have always found inspiring about a character like dalton trumbo and uh, uh all of these guys who came out of the blacklist Nice. We're not. We're not going to cancel it. This is my. This is my passion. I've been trying to do this for three years. I'm not going to cancel it. If if we got zero views on every video, I'd still keep this up. I have. I have. We're, build, we're building the audience as it goes along. <laughs> Next week we'll right. have. <laughs> um, yeah. I. Uh, we we need to talk about next week because I'm going to, to Long Island for the week. But I want to. I think on Friday I'm trying to do a. Um, to do a stream and then I'm going to release it as a pre-record. If anybody on here wants to be part of that, I think I'm going to do the Manchurian Candidate at six on Friday. Sure. So, but then I, I want to keep this as the time slot in general. But I just don't think on next Tuesday I'd be able to do it. But I want to have something. So let's talk about that, I guess, uh, later.
<laughs> right. But yeah, anyway. Um, so yeah, so that's my question about it. Um, I think that, uh, you know, I they they did act, I guess, in the end, um, as it says, like, you know, the right before it was released, the, um, the Le Legion of Decency, which I don't know if that was an actual, uh, I don't know if that was part of like the Motion Pictures Association of America, but they demanded over 30 changes, cuts, and deletions. Um, and so Aldridge made very minor cuts, I guess. Um, <laughs> so yeah, so I guess my question is, um, yeah, is it one and the same? And um, I, I do like the idea that it's one and the same. Um, I feel like having it be one and the same is is kind of advantageous for a leftist because then you're solving two problems with one, you know, one solution. And and I feel like uh, that was again like that's what was inspiring about uh, Trumbo, uh, at least as far as like the the legend goes with the getting the movie out of the blacklist and all of that uh, and how like he kind of wrote under ali aliases and like all of that stuff uh, when he was out of work uh, and i think that like basically at this time aside from the kind of diabolical life-threatening situations that some people were put through like and, and the kind of intimidation and uh, all of that that this entailed the, the blacklist entailed uh, it did seem to have kind of inspired a level of daring in filmmakers and a level of strategy and a level of kind of creativity uh, in in purely you know subverting this getting out of this blacklist and like uh, speaking to this moment uh, mm -hmm. that they have getting, risen up getting, getting around the Hayes Code. I mean, even if mm -hmm. they weren't on on the blacklist, um, right? I think, I think another movie that we should probably watch in the future, but I mean, not in the near future, but um, I think The Big Sleep does a really good job getting around the Hayes Code at an earlier time. Um, I, I, right. and I, and I think that, I think that sticking to these, um, these pulp novelizations of, 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 uh, films, um, like, I, I think maybe the fact that they were insanely popular and, and, I, and I do like the, the idea that like, they were kind of like the James Patterson <laughs> novels of the day. Like, um, right. like I think maybe sticking towards these, uh, you know, sticking with these pulp novelizations, maybe let them get away with more. Cause it's not like, you know, these screenwriters are coming up with these ideas off the top of their heads and then, right. um, yeah, there, there's something that is accepted by American society. Um, maybe a rougher, a rougher, more lowbrow culture of American society, but still a, a mainstream of American society. They're insanely popular at least. Um, it, it's kind of like when, uh, Neil Gaiman got in trouble for, um, this comic that he did, uh, back in the eighties that was like super violent. And uh, they went to trial and they said, you know, how dare you publish such trash? And he goes, well, I adapted it from the Bible. And everybody's like, oh, okay, never mind. Did I call it trash? I meant class. How, how dare you? Classy, not trashy. God, I love you. But, but yeah, that was kind of his defense. And in a way, it's kind of the same thing. It's like, you know, this is a novel. A novel supposed to be higher brow entertainment, even though, yeah, this is a pulp novel, which is lowbrow, but, you know. But still, but insanely popular, which is the interesting part, right? And, yeah. And it's the well, same with, I mean. There's also lowbrow, because I, I think, yeah. uh, I, I think, um, uh, I just blanked on his, uh, Rick Perlstein talks a bit about middle brow uh, and, yeah. and Nixon land, you know, uh, that, 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 you know, we don't have middle brow entertainment anymore. And, yeah. and I think this kind of falls in that uh, 
that lost middle brow because uh, we really don't. I mean, it's it's either Marvel movies or like you know DC. Quentin Tarantino's feet footage, and, and that's about it. You know, nothing in between. I like I like uh, I like the comment earlier that the the feet in this inspired Tarantino's feet feet. Uh, <laughs> I mean, there were no women's feet though, particularly. I've only oh no he no this is all men yeah. Yeah. yeah, there's only shoes though in this. I mean, I guess like I guess this was a particular trope. Of, well, do you um, think do you think Hayes would have allowed naked feet? No, no, no. I, I, wow. I think so. The uh, the shoes uh, inspired Elmore Leonard, who was a uh, novelist that started writing around this time. And one of his tropes is going in immense detail and describing people's shoes. So obviously, this influenced uh, Elmore Leonard, who is also considered a pulp writer. And another thing I think that inspired the uh, the shoes part of it, I mean, you know, on some level, I think it was the Hayes Code, but on another level, a lot of this uh, novelization is, you know, by Mickey Splane, like Mickey Splane is describing it from Mike Hammer's point of view. So in the beginning, when he's knocked over and kind of paralyzed, he describes the shoes and it, there's a great, there's a great, um, like a motif throughout it, um, very reactionary, but still great, where He's saying like I can't see the people's faces because you know he was paralyzed on the floor and tied up. Um, I think both like he had been beaten to the point where he like couldn't move. So he's like I can't like I'll but I'll know their voices if I see it. Um, so throughout the movie or throughout the throughout the novelization, he's like trying to hear what the person's voices sound like because um, he doesn't have like a like a face to go by. So uh, throughout it, I mean, and you know, there's there's an incredibly uh, violent reactionary side to the novelization where throughout like his one motivation is I'm gonna kill these motherfuckers. Like that's what he's saying throughout he's like I'm gonna fucking kill these people. Like I'm like so much more than the movie, he's saying like I'm gonna kill these people but I don't know what they look like because I was, you know, left on the floor paralyzed. Mm. So now I'm gonna try to like tell by their voices who it is. And the scene where he goes and visits Carl Avello is very similar um in the novelization, but he finally sees his face and he asks him a bunch of questions and you know He's evasive of, of the questions um, throughout their conversation. He goes, you know, you got no information out of this. And he goes, well, now I know what you look like. And now, you know, next time, um, next time, or when, when I finally fucking kill you. He says, it's like really, the way he says it is almost like, uh, it's just so interesting. He goes, he goes, I finally see your face. And when I'm going to, and when I fucking like kill you and tear you apart, I'm going to know it's the right person. Um, which is just like a terrifying, like even for a mob boss, I feel like that's a terrifying thing to hear. Mm. <laughs> you know? Yeah, in this, in this, I don't think he says anything. In the movie, I don't think he says anything intimidating yeah. to, to the mob boss. He's pretty docile, and uh, he said, I think the most that he says is like he says, "I'm not gonna quote my price," um, and uh, the mob boss says, "Like now, you don't have the opportunity to anymore," and he walks away. Yeah, um, I think that's that's still like the mob boss having the final say in the matter, and I don't think he ever has a scene where he intimidates or threatens the mob boss in any meaningful way, right? In the yeah, movie. no, he's kind of just doing like the noir, like back and forth. Um, yeah, but uh, oh, here's here's the here's the line that we were talking about earlier. Where it goes uh, where the sister, who's supposed to be the sister of the mob boss, who plays a way bigger role, turns on her brother in the in the novelization. But is will you be my friend? What do I have to do? I want to be a close friend. Ask me something. And no matter what it is, the answer is yes, isn't it? Maybe. Let's see how good you are at spelling. Can you spell no? N-O spells no. That's a good girl. Now you practice saying that because one of the best ways to be friendly is to know when to say no. Which is 
straight up like a pickup artist line. Like he, she's, he's just nagging her. Man, <laughs> I, I wanna, I wanna see this movie remade you with uh, Tommy Wiseau playing uh, this character. <laughs> I am American. <laughs> Yeah, he's like the best. I think Mike Hammer would be. He's the best Mike Hammer that I can think of. Like I, yeah, I feel like he would nail uh, the character one hundred percent. Oh hi, Mark. <laughs> I'm gonna call it. I'm gonna call it quits here. I guess. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, left is best. <laughs> left is best. <laughs>